Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is part two of the DC Spotlight <laughs> for the week of July 27th, 2021. 18 DC books coming out this week. So hey. Rocky and I decided that we, we had to split it up into two. Uh, yeah, remember uh, we said this on the first part when people were talking about the demise of DC and Marvel was going to buy them and they weren't putting out any books. Well, 18 books this week, everybody. Yeah. So part two, uh, two over two days. Yeah. I'm wearing a different shirt. Yeah. So why? <laughs> we so just why? ran and changed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so just a quick reminder before we dive in, everybody, this Sunday at Terrificon, I'll be hosting the charity auction. Uh, go to twitter.com forward slash the comic source. There's a tweet that's pinned right at the top. It has all the details about the auction, or you can go to LRM. Uh, online.com forward slash news forward slash the comic source. And you can find the story there as well. All the details about how to bid. Uh, if you're there at Terrificon, we'd love to have you join us August 1st, which is Sunday in room B at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, it's going to last about an hour. Or if you can't make it out to Terrificon, you can join us via YouTube. And again, go to that uh, pin tweet. And the link for the YouTube live show is there and you can bid that way as well. So we have a lot of items. I'm starting to think that we're not going to get through all the items in only an hour. So if that's the case, then we'll do some sort of online auction to get rid of or, or not get rid of, but to auction off the last uh, items that are remaining. There's so many good things. There's a Nicholas Scott original art page. There's a really cool V care, uh, Ken Marion, uh, Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern. There's a Batman from Adam Gorham. There's a Batman from Jimmy Palmiotti. There's uh, some prints from Bernie Wrightson. It just goes on and on and on. So there's uh, so many really cool um, items. And again, the auction goes to benefit a little two-year-old boy named Titus who is battling leukemia. So uh, go back and listen to the first part of uh, this DC Spotlight for more, a little more details about Titus if you're so inclined and we're Really looking forward to everybody joining us and, and getting a big chunk of money to help support Titus and his family as he's uh, battling cancer. I mean, it's ridiculous how expensive medical care is in this country. And, you know, you can literally bankrupt yourself just trying to keep your, your little boy alive. It's heartbreaking in that way. So anything that we can do to help, we're, we're going to give it a try. So it's a great cause. Great cause. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and thanks to all the creators, so many great creators who have, you know, donated items, um, you know, it's, it's, they're not getting anything out of it. You know, I just reached out and they were generous enough to donate. So we really appreciate it. Uh, all right. Well, let's dive into the first book we're going to talk about. It's Infinite Frontier, number three, written by Joshua Williamson. We have Paul Pelletier, Jesus Moreno, Tom Derenick, and Zermonico listed as pencilers. Norm Ratman, Raul Fernandez, Tom Derenick, and Zermonico listed as inkers. Ramulo Fajardo Jr. handles the colors. Tom Napolitano does the letters. There's a couple of different covers. There's a Mitch Garrett's cover. There's a Brian Hitch cover. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, we've we've talked in the past about these uh, Infinite Frontier. It's it's a six issue mini, and we've talked about all these different threads that are going on and how they they haven't started to come together at all yet. Well, in this issue, they still don't come together at all yet. <laughs> We're halfway through. <laughs> And like everything is still on these parallel paths. Nothing has started to kind of bend toward each other. Uh, one thing we have seen, I mentioned it in, in part one of the DC Spotlight, is how it, the house ad in the back 
that talks about these different mysteries of the multiverse, those change this week. And they're, they're asking different questions. And we're, that's what some, a lot of those questions that are being asked in that house ad are, are directly from this infinite frontier series and what's going on with Jade being missing the, the, on the first page of the issue, we get mysterious dark UFO seen in the skies of Phoenix. And we, we know that that's actually the black lantern that is Roy Harper currently um, Captain Adam, a uh, Captain Adam from a different world, not from Earth Zero, exploded, and we see the crater there uh, at the military base. Uh, we get DEO Agent Cameron believed dead; she was in that explosion. Uh, and then, what is the multiverse, and why you should be afraid of it, and and whatnot. And so, again, just all these different storylines, all these uh, different questions and mysteries to be answered. And again, they're all played out in this issue, right? With I, I do really enjoy seeing Obsidian and Alan Scott, his father, fighting uh, alongside each other, searching for their sister. Uh, well, it would be uh, Alan's daughter, um, Jade, Jenny Lynn, um, and Obsidian's sister. Um, and I especially liked the, the double-page spread where they fight up against all these sort of classic JSA villains. We see Cronus, we see... Uh, Shade, we see Gentleman Ghost, we see Solomon Grundy, uh, and it's just it's just really cool to see these old, you know older characters, these JSA type foes that we you know Earth Two type foes that we we don't get to see that often um, yeah. anymore. But again, like what's I still don't know what the point is. Like we don't know where Jenny Lynn is. We don't know who took her, um, at least not at this point in the story. Uh, and, and we don't know how it ties into anything else. So, again, it's just all these disparate threads. Yeah. We get uh, a cool Roy Harper scene where he does indeed have the Black Lantern ring. That's pretty fun. We get a continuation of the story that was going on with Val Zod and uh, Thomas Wayne, uh, the Batman from Flashpoint. Uh, and they're on the, the world of Magog, who is just as angry and sort of – uh, what's the word? Obstinate, I guess, yes. as ever. Uh, <laughs> He's always a jerk. <laughs> yeah, totally. We we do get a really cool retro-looking uh, story about Barry Allen um, racing with Jay, and they, they do a good job of making it look like an old-school Silver Age comic, uh, and that leads directly into where Barry Allen is now. You may be asking yourself if you're reading Flash these days, hey, great, it's Wally West is back, but we haven't seen Barry Allen in a while basically since I think infinite frontier zero, if I'm not mistaken, where we know he got captured by dark side and, you know, shades of crisis here when he's running on, he's literally running on a hamster wheel. It looks exactly like a hamster wheel. There's no other way to put it. <laughs> um, and he's, he's being manipulated by psycho pirate. So, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for, for psycho pirate. Uh, and then eventually Roy is brought aboard a, a ship kind of like uh, one of the, the ships that the authority used that can enter the bleed. Um, and he's being manipulated by Hector Hammond, who's no longer the giant headed Hector Hammond. But uh, we're told by Hector himself that when the universe reset after the events of Dark Knight Death Metal, that he himself was, was he what did he say? Factory reset, I think is what he said. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was I was reset to factory settings, is what he said. But he retained a bunch of the knowledge that he had as the giant-headed genius. Yes, he's Hector much more Hammond. attractive without the big head. Yeah, yeah, he <laughs> looks much much more normal. Um, and he, he they're out there to sort of again police the multiverse, very authority-like, 
right? And they want they think that Roy Harper doesn't isn't uh, qualified to wield the Black Lantern ring, um, and so they're out there to to take that away from him and and make sure that the the multiverse is safe. And as they're doing that, as they're in the bleed where nothing should be able to to harm them, we see this team of heroes show up and. Turns out that Jade is isn't actually missing. She's part of this, I guess, another team that's out there looking to protect the multiverse. And I'm not even sure I recognize everybody here. Obviously, that's Panther and Power Girl, and and Jade. But in behind her is that is that Adam? I I think that's Adam Smasher and Nuclon. Uh, the, gotcha. the one with the uh, the big the big guy holding things above everyone Adam's, there, I right. believe, is Adam Smasher, and I think yeah. I think that's the Adam's uh, Nuclon is, is the other character, but I might be wrong. Yeah, I that. thought Nuclon. I mean, I'm not familiar with this look on Nuclon. Nuclon from uh, in, Infinite uh, Infinity yeah. Incorporated had the yeah. red costume with the mohawk. Is this an updated he, look? Well, he he does, and I, I actually looked this up, and I tried to find a similar costume to that one there, and I couldn't find it. But the symbol is kind of like Nuclon. Oh, okay, and so gotcha. I, I guessed I, I could be wrong, uh, Jace. Uh, I'm not sure who it is. I know that one guy is see Adam Smasher and Nuclon are the, the new legacy character. Nuclon sometimes went by Adam Smasher. And right. so I, that's why I don't I, I really don't know who that other character is. I'm guessing maybe it's a, a, a another legacy character, but I, I, I don't know. I, I could be wrong. I, I'm. I, we'll have to wait next issue when they talk to each other. Hopefully they'll say <laughs> they'll use names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So again, a lot going on in this issue and, and, and really interesting stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm invested in the story, but I'm still asking the question. I'm invested because it's interesting, but how much longer can Joshua Williamson keep my attention? Um, if I don't start getting some answers on them, we don't start seeing these plot threads start to come together. I, I said the same thing last issue. So I guess credit to him that he, he keeps introducing these new elements that are interesting enough that I, I want to come back and I want to know what's going on. And I think um, probably part of it just goes to my love of the DC universe and knowing that this is a very important miniseries to set up what comes next. Yeah. So that's part of it. I, I feel sort of obligated to read it because I know it, it is so important and it's going to have long lasting consequences. If, if that wasn't the case, I don't know that I would feel so invested because again, these, it just hasn't started coming together yet. Uh, as far as the art, I mean, it's, it's pretty solid and you know, I get that there's a lot going on. There's a lot and, of artists, man. There's a lot yeah, of artists on this. Like, that, I, I don't know if there's too many or what do you think? Like in a way we're dealing with a multiverse. So maybe we, we should get a different types of styles to represent the different versions of characters in the multiverse. But, you know, I, I kind of miss the old days of one, one artist like George Perez or one like a Phil, Phil Jimenez on infinite, infinite crisis, or even just, uh, there was one artist on final crisis. I more or less, and I kind of miss that, but it's yeah, not bad, I, but I, yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. I do too. They're, they're certainly taking advantage of the fact that they have multiple artists and they're, and that, that's how they are splitting it up, right? Like you do this storyline and you do this storyline and you do this storyline. So at least the storylines, you know, kind of look the same, but, I, but I'm with you. I, I would prefer if we just had one, cause it's not that any of these artists are, are particularly bad, but I mean, they're all good. I, I should say uh, good to great, but I, I just would like the consistency and, and they didn't pick artists whose styles are, are wildly disparate, you know, um, the, the obviously the page that stands out is the 
the Jay Garrick, Wally West sort of race, uh, but that's purposely supposed to look old school. Um, but there are some pages I think that are better than others. And, and I'm with you. I would just, I would rather we just had one artist, but what I will say is that their styles are close enough that, you know, somebody who doesn't pay a whole heck of a lot of attention may not even notice. Uh, and the other thing is if I have the choice between the book being on time and, and having this group of artists and the book being late with one artist, I'll pick being on time because I think it's important to keep the momentum of the series going. And, and we know that when things start slipping uh, and start going later and later, that, that things lose their momentum. And uh, I think back to remember uh, Marvel when they did the secret wars, uh, big giant, you know, Jonathan Hickman thing. And it slipped yeah. so far back that they started releasing the new Marvel universe stuff, Iron Man number one and whatnot before they even finished the series. <laughs> Uh, and I, I just remember it slipped. So it slipped like three months, and uh, yeah, the new the new universe, the new rebooted Marvel universe, already kicked off before you even got the end of that story, and it kind of gave it away. You know what happened at the end of Secret Wars. So you certainly don't want that. Um, it's one thing to have a regular book slip or a miniseries that's kind of self-contained slip. It does lose momentum. It probably costs them sales. But when it's a series like this or a series like Secret Wars that sets up what's to come for the whole universe, the whole shared comic book universe. I think it's really important to, to just stay on schedule. Um, that, that's more important than having just one artist work on it. But, you know, it just goes to show how different comics are now. You know, you used to have guys like John Byrne, certainly Jack Kirby. They'd draw multiple books in a, in a, in a month, you know, and now these guys can't even draw one book. Um, but you know, the art is a lot more detailed, uh, and you know, things are, things are a little different now. They don't have to draw multiple books to earn a living wage. That was part of why they did it back in the day. It wasn't that they wanted to, they, they needed to, to pay their bills. So, uh, so anyway, I, I did enjoy it, but I, I am more than ready. I was re last time I said I was ready. Now I'm more than ready for these plot threads to start tying together. So Anyway, uh, what were your thoughts beyond the uh, beyond the artwork, Rocky? Uh, well, uh, just just a couple of things. I I think that uh, I'm I'm a little bit more uh, I'm gonna cut up a little bit more slack than you are. I I, I think some of these plot threads are coming together, uh, uh, for for the most part. And I refer to the on the at the beginning of the comic. There's this summary, uh, uh, an excerpt from the Daily Planet that you uh, abbreviated earlier. But uh, Jade is missing. And the reason why, the, and and frankly, Alan Scott and Obsidian, they're 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 going through the Rogues Gallery, uh, they're they're beating up members, villains of the of the old Justice Society, thinking that maybe one of them uh, is responsible for Jade missing, when in actual fact they discover when they talk to Shade that maybe it's an old villain of Infinity Incorporated, and for those who read Infinity Incorporated. Uh, Psycho Pirate is one of the old enemies of Infinity Incorporated, along with the Dark Side Club. And so that's a link to Darkseid. Uh, the mysterious dark UFOs in the skies above Phoenix, Phoenix, that of course is Black Lantern, Roy Harper, who is being spoken to uh, at, at one point in this comic. Uh, a mysterious voice says, come to me, my Black Lantern. That's probably the voice of Darkseid. We don't know, but it's probably Darkseid. So it's another Darkseid link. The explosion in the military base, that was Captain Adam from another universe. And he killed himself rather than being... Uh, subjected to further control by a malevolent force that we assume again is Darkseid. The DEO agent Chase was believed dead in that explosion. 
And then, of course, the multiverse itself, it's referring uh, just about how people remember the multiverse. Some of the other questions that take place in here uh, on Earth-22 when they're speaking with, when uh, Calvin Ellis, President uh, President Superman of Earth-23, him along with Justice Incarnate confront Magog because they're following the fragments of the spaceship that F- Flashpoint Batman was in when he crashed on Earth-23. And uh, finally, one of them says, well, you know, maybe we should all touch the fragment of the ship because Flashpoint Batman points out that we, we vibrate at the same frequency of the universe we're from. So maybe if maybe if one of us is from the universe that this ship is from, maybe that will it'll have some kind of reaction. And it does. And it reacts to Calvin Ellis when he touches the ship, which makes him believe that he's got to go back to his own planet. Earth-23 was where this ship originated, which is interesting. Why did this ship originate in Earth-23 and somehow end up with Flashpoint Batman in it? Uh, and then it, it just does seem rather odd. Also, I find it interesting, just for fans of Roy Harper, uh, it's quite clear that Roy Harper, when he utilizes the Black Lantern ring, he turns into a zombie and he kind of loses control. But what gives him control back is when he thinks about his friends, when he thought about Oliver Queen, he thinks about Donna, Donna Troy and the Titans, he thinks about his, his uh, daughter, Leon, who he believes is dead. It's love that brings him back from the brink of the control of the Black Lantern Ring. That, I'm sure, is going to play out in future issues. And that ultimately, that love, that power of love and friendship is going to be one of the things that pulls him back from the influence of Darkseid and the anti-life. Again, I'm speculating here, but I don't think my speculations are that far out of whack that those people that are familiar a little bit with the DC universe, I think they can, you can kind of get behind that. So I got to give some props to Joshua Williamson here. He's, he's doing a good job. Uh, at least for me, I am being entertained. Um, yeah. And artistically, I, as I said before, I'm willing to, I would prefer one really, I would prefer one massive A plus name artist, but this, this works for me. This works for me. I don't mind it. Uh, you know, the different artistic styles from universe to universe. I think I can go with that. It's interesting. It's fun. I'm getting something. I'm getting something out of this. I'm. Uh, I particularly love uh, seeing Justice Incarnate in the house. I, I just love Captain Carrot and Mary Marvel and Machine Head and the female Aqua Woman. Uh, that's such a great team. We don't see enough of them, and I wish we get to know that. I hope we get to know them a little bit more in this series. Uh, there's so many characters here that I just know and love. And then at the end, uh, I find it very interesting that uh, uh, we're near the end when when Flash Barry Allen is being utilized by Psycho Pirate. To power up, like you said, it looks like a squirrel in the cage. What is he doing? What What is Flash? What is he using Flash for? Remember back to the original Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Anti-Monitor used Barry Allen to power up the machine that he was using to destroy all the universes. Is this something similar to that? Is is, is Barry Allen being used by Darkseid to create a machine uh, to, to access the speed force, which permeates all through the bleed, as I understand it, and all through the, the, the Omniverse? Is he... Is he powering a machine that he will somehow be part of his machinations to destroy the Omniverse or to control it and bring anti-life to everything? Again, I'm speculating, but based for for a lover like me of DC history and lore, I'm really loving this. I'm loving these callbacks. I'm I'm loving seeing uh, 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 Psycho Pirate's face as he sort of takes off the mask. He's clearly controlling controlling Barry, and of of course Justice League Incarnate Cal- Calvin. Ellis and the rest of the Justice League incarnate, they don't know where Barry is. A uh, couple of, um, I love, I love when uh, Jade uh, uh, 
Jade shows up with uh, at the end with uh, J- with what they call Infinite Incorporated. Now that's really, I find that really odd. It's kind of an kind of an odd name. It's obviously a reference to Infinite Frontier, but it, it used to be Infinity Incorporated. Now they're calling themselves yeah. Infinite Incorporated. It's kind of corny, I think. But I guess, I guess you got so many Justice Leagues now. We have a different Infinity Incorporated. It's Infinite Incorporated. It's it's fun. But like you said, there are a lot of moving parts, and you know, you know, I always. I don't always get behind a lot of Marvel things because I'm not a Marvel zombie and I can't get behind a lot of those X-Men events because I just feel too confused. And I, I would understand if somebody who's maybe more of a Marvel zombie and not too much in a DC lore could look at this and maybe feel a little bit overwhelmed or, or not, not attracted to it. But I personally, I'm, I'm loving this, but I, I got a strong DC bias. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, uh, very, like I said, very curious to see what it leads into because you know uh, Jonathan or jo- uh, Joshua Williamson has hinted that there's another big sort of crisis level event coming next year. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, all right, up next we have Icon and Rocket season one number one. She ready, it's called. Uh, written by Reginald Hudland, pencils by Doug Braithwaite, inks for the first half of the issue are by Scott Hanna, second half of the issue are by Andrew Curry. Colors are by Brad Anderson. Letters by Anne World Design. Uh, the main cover is by Torin Clark, and he's the guy that I referenced when we were talking about the variant cover for the Mr. Miracle uh, issue that we talked about on, on part one of the spotlight. And I said, I, there's another cover that he did that really caught my eye. It's th- it, This is the book. Uh, there's also an old school variant by Daryl Banks, who most people will remember as the artist for the Kyle Rayner run on Green Lantern. And then there's a, a new school variant that's by the interior artist Doug Braithwaite. And there's a really cool 1 in 25 variant by Reina Cayano, I think is how you say her name. So there's some really cool covers. I almost want to Gorgeous. I love yeah. the covers. I love all four of them, I, which yeah, is rare. I'm I the same way. I, yeah. I limited myself to buying only two um, when I ordered these, you know, months ago. And then I'll probably end up picking up picking up the other two because yeah. I won't be able to help myself and end up with all four. But uh, yeah, this is, uh, I don't remember. I, I remember reading static when milestone came around the first time and I remember reading hardware and I think blood syndicate was another one I read, but I don't rem- remember reading icon when uh, it came around the first time and he still had the sidekick rocket, but it wasn't called icon or rocket. It was just called icon uh, when milestone was around the first time. Um, so I, I'm, wasn't that familiar with the character when I dove into this. So, uh, what about you, Rocky? Or did you, I, had you, I think you had said before you never read any milestone stuff before, right? No. And, uh, and to be quite blunt, I'll, I'll, I'll say more when you're done with your spiel, but I, I love the fact that they, this opening issue spoon fed me. Cause I, I really didn't know a lot about it. I, I absolutely am captivated by this origin. I know it's, I know from just reading other reviews that it's, or pardon me, reading, being told what his origin is, that this is a rehash. It is a rehash of his origin that was established back in the day. But I'm so glad they, they started from the beginning because I, I love this. What a fascinating origin. You know, I just love it. Originating back to 1843, Georgia, and how he, this, he has such a fascinating life, this icon. And, and to him to intermingle with a modern day, you know, a young African-American girl in, in Dakota City, 
This is really, I'm captivated by this. I'm definitely going to be picking this up and sticking with it. Because to me, it's like a, it's just like a really, it's it's a very interesting take on, on a Superman story, but with a very different, uh, I, I like the fact that it's a different race with a very different history with us, with us coming from a, very, you know, Civil War America. Like, I mean, it, I find this really, really interesting. Yeah, I agree with you. It's clearly, you know, inspired by Superman. This is the sort of the milestone universe, the Dakota universe, whatever you want to call it, version of of Superman, um, you know, being adopted by uh, some slaves back in Georgia in 1843, like you you mentioned. Um, And this guy, not not inherent. I mean, he's not a baby when he comes to he appears to be a baby when he crash lands on earth because he has the ability to shape change. And it, it really interesting what they talk about. Well, it's, it's uh, based on the premise that most intelligent species won't eat their young. Right. So <laughs> yeah. as soon as the, the female slave touches the outside of the ship, the ship reads everything about her and, and gains her knowledge. And so it learns everything about the, the, you know, humanity and, and human beings as a species on earth. Um, and uses that to transform the, which is sort of interesting when you think about it, right? Because supposedly matter can neither be created nor destroyed, but he's able to go from a full-sized alien to a little baby. Maybe it has something to do with mental projection and he's heavy, he's denser, and they don't realize that he's, I mean, who knows? Comics, right? Um, but but so interesting to, to go that route, and, and he's so long-lived. And, and that's really the, that's the big difference for me. You know, when you start talking about Superman, this this is already an intelligent, mature being. So it's not like Superman in that Superman didn't know he was an alien, lands on Earth as a little baby, grows up with the values that are instilled in him by Mon Pa Kent. That's not the case here. Uh, this alien has been around. They're a very long, very, very long-lived race from what we glean from the story and from other uh, things that I've read in uh, Milestone Returns and whatnot. So... There are various times, and that's where he finds himself in the beginning of this issue. There are various times in this alien's life where uh, he calls himself Augustus, or he's named Augustus by these slaves that find him. That's the name he takes. But there's various times where Augustus chooses to just kind of be a hermit. You know, he, he's he's like, why should I bother helping out these humans? Because all they want to do, no matter what I do, it's sort of pointless. You know, it's 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 futile to try to help them better themselves because they keep falling back into the same old mistakes. Um, And in his mind, it's almost like if you knew that the ants that lived in this particular anthill in your backyard were always fighting with the ants from the backyard next door, why would you care? They're ants. They're sort of beneath your notice, right? Like, and that's sort of what he what he feels and from that as a starting point that's a very interesting and fascinating way to look at it and then you layer on the fact that he's a person of color just based on the fact that it was this slave woman this this african american slave woman that touched the ship first that's the only reason that he looks like he's a person of color if a white person had touched it first he would have been white but he's not um, and, and because of that and because of the persecution that he sees firsthand uh, by becoming an African-American, but by taking on the appearance of an African-American, he gets a different perspective. That's another layer that's added on that's fascinating as well. Um, 
And then what stories can you tell possibly about his race, this very long lived, um, you know, advanced alien race that he's a part of that, that can be explored as well. So there's so much here when you think about icon as a character, just fascinating, um, to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of disappointed in myself that I, why wasn't I reading the icon? I read so many of them. Why yeah. didn't I pick up icon back then? I'm not, I'm not I sure agree. I have an answer to that, to that question. Um, so that's the icon half of it. And then you add in rocket who, uh, I think Reginald Hudlin does a, a good job, not a great job. He gets a little tropey with, with who she is as this young black teenage girl uh, trying to fit in and um, maybe kind of dumbing herself down for the, the gang of boys that she hangs out with. Um, it's, a, it's a little on the nose. It's a little cliche. But the, the turn, the 180-degree turn that she has in this first issue is, is very believable, and, and I, I liked that about her. She clearly is intelligent. I love her thought process. And she, it, it does appear that, and again, I think like Rocky said, this is all very reminiscent of the first go-round with, with Icon, um, just like Static was in the, the Static book. And I love that even though we're getting this modern retelling, they're staying very true to the roots of who these characters are. And you know, even though the origin is the same, then you go on and you tell modern stories with modern, um, you know, more modern sensibility and taking on um, modern problems, which unfortunately a lot of the same problems with race and inequality are the same now <laughs> as they were back in the 90s when Milestone was coming out the first time. Unfortunately, we haven't come, in my opinion, we haven't come far enough in 30 years. But I love that they stay true to the original um, beginnings of these stories uh, but then you're able to open it up and do, you know, whatever, whatever you want. So in, in a way it's very poignant and it's, it's really, um, you can't help but root for, uh, for rocket, you know, that you think that she, she's able to get through to this alien who's, you know, hundreds of years old and, and maybe persuade him to, to get off the sidelines, which apparently from what we see reading the story, um, that at various times through his life, Augustus, this alien has, has been persuaded to come off the sidelines and get involved. But my, to my point earlier is even though he's done it, he hasn't seen any long lasting change. And that's why once again, when we meet him here in modern times, he's, he's once again, just locked in his uh, mansion, kind of letting the world go by, just waiting for someone from his, uh, his species, his home planet, his alien race to, show back up, you know, kind of like ET phone home. Uh, he needs some help. Maybe he needs a speaking spell and some Reese's pieces to build a communication device to uh, contact his species to be picked up. But I think it's a good start. Uh, I'm, I'm very invested. I, I actually like this first issue more than I like the first issue of static. And I like the first issue of static quite a bit. Um, yeah. The other thing I'll say is it's Doug Braithwaite art. So, you know, most recently, Rocky and I had seen Doug Braithwaite art in the ENIAC series from Matt Kent, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Doug is at the height of his powers here, just as good. Storytelling is very dynamic. He breaks the panels when he needs to, to help sell that sense of action. Uh, very detailed line work, wonderful colors, you know, great storytelling. Uh, Reginald Hundland does tend to be a little wordy, but I think it works in this context because it's, it helps to sell the fact that both of these characters, both Augustus uh, or Icon and Raquel Rocket, they're both very cerebral individuals. They're both very smart and intelligent people. And so 
I didn't mind the a little bit of extra dialogue um, because it adds context and it, it shows that they they're very thoughtful uh, individuals, very thoughtful characters. So, uh, yeah, I thought this was fantastic. Rocky, what did you think? I thought it was uh, – I love this. I also enjoyed this more than I the first issue of Static, because, but I'm also a lover of history. And, uh, you know, uh, and I'm just – I'm really fascinated by this. I actually don't know much about uh, Icon at all. Like, really, I don't. I, the questions I have have probably already been answered in his first series, to be honest. Like, I actually wonder, you know, there was – you know, when the rocket ship was – they when they found the rocket ship that icon was in, then there was, there was some white settlers or some white farmers that came upon the ship. What did they do with the ship? Where's the ship? Uh, where, where's the, does he have enemies uh, from? Where, where is he actually from? Did he have, does he know what planet he's from? Uh, these are questions that maybe that they've already been answered. I don't know. Why, why is he so inactive? Why is he, He's had periods of his time where he interacts with humanity more, but less so other times. Why has he remained so cynical for long periods of time? Then he's optimistic. This Raquel Rocket Girl, or this Raquel goes goes by Rock, will go by Rocket. She is uh, clearly someone who. Uh, it's very interesting how she progresses in the story. Her name is only said for the first time on the final page. All of her friends never refer to her by Raquel by by Raquel they call her that's my girl she is that girl even when they're in the same car with with uh with uh Raquel they refer to her in the third person very disrespectful the way they talk to her uh, they never refer to her by actual name these females are weak minded they say as you say it's it's kind of a little bit tropey there but at, but i mean i suppose that's that's the way they speak in the hood i mean i mean i'm not i'm not saying i don't know but <laughs> but it, it it was clearly she is the she's the smartest of the, of all their friends and she's clearly the most disrespected and she clearly wants, uh, she wants a better life for herself. I love the fact that she, that she wants, she thinks of being a superhero. She, she knows that, uh, August Augustus, when they meet him and he's displayed, they try to rob him and he displays these superpowers. She feels that he can help. He can help the community. And she, and Augustus remembers somebody else from 1921 who reminds him of Raquel and he he says something in the final scene where where he's thinking back to 1921 where in, in 1921 Paris where he says that uh he references a time where uh you know going on a, a crusade and uh he doesn't want I don't you know I don't care about your bible and I don't feel survivor's guilt and so so that tells me that he probably does. Whenever somebody says they don't feel something, well, if you never felt it, you wouldn't have thought to bring it up. So I think, you know, I think that he's got a lot of guilt in his past. I'm guessing Augustus, Augustus does. And this is in Paris in 1921. So I'm thinking there was the Tulsa riots in 1921. Did they flee to Paris after Tulsa? I'm just saying are they going to incorporate history in this. I don't know. I'm maybe reading too much into it. But I'm really fascinated by this. I love it. I, I quite enjoyed this. And um, I want to go, you know, like I said, I actually do have the trade on order at the shop, but I haven't got it yet uh, for uh, Icon and Rocket. So uh, hopefully that'll come in in the next m month or so. My retailer never told me when, but yeah, I enjoyed this. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm real curious too. I, I didn't hear a lot about, uh, a lot of people talking about static uh, the first issue when it came out, other than I saw the writer Vita Ayala on their Twitter feed 
um, just thanking people for the positive reaction. Um, I didn't hear a lot of people, but you know, I did hear a lot of people back in 2017 when it was announced that Milestone was coming back at DC and it took another four years and there's all kinds of legal battles and whatnot and, you know, politics and whatever. And we won't get into that, but with the amount of people that were excited about it coming back and even last year at the DC fandom, I would think that I would hear more people talking about it. So I don't know, maybe I'm just missing it, but uh, I, I definitely hope that if you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, that you give it a chance because it's, it's a great story. And like Rocky said, you don't have to have any previous knowledge of icon rocket or the milestone universe. This is just a good story. It stands on its own. So definitely encourage you to pick it up. All right. Speaking of static, that's the next book we're going to talk about static season one, number two family meeting written by Vita Ayala. Layouts by Chris Cross, finishes and colors by Nicholas Draper Ivy, letters by And World Design. Uh, and we, we finished off last issue, sort of a cliffhanger when the bully from Virgil Hawkins School shows up at his house. Uh, what does he call himself? Hot head or heat wave, I think. Heat wave, there you go. Uh, yeah, he shows up because him and Virgil had gotten to a, a little bit of a fight at school, and Virgil showed him showed him up. So he shows up and sets Virgil's house on fire uh and that's kind of the cliffhanger ending where uh, this issue two uh, picks up so what'd you think of this one rocky uh i it, it's all right i mean i gotta say the art is is really fantastic crisscross does just an amazing job uh, nicholas draper ivy on the on the colors is really really good uh this this really continues the story and i i do find it fascinating i find it interesting there there's this big bang that happened and the big bang was this uh protest movement and these cops uh broke up the protest movement with uh, not tear gas but with an experimental gas that gave a lot of the people at, at the black lives matter protest uh superpowers and it, this issue starts off with this another classmate of uh, Virgil Hawkins, who is static, another classmate of his named Daisy, is manifesting some powers. Meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, this uh, heatwave character, another student of Virgil's, uh, you know, tries to burn down his house, but he runs out of power because a lot of these kids, they're still learning how to use their powers, and and Virgil is one of them. Virgil then uses his static powers to suck up the the heat and the fire, and then shoot the fire out in the into the upper atmosphere. So he's basically they do man. He does manage to save his home, uh, much to the delight of his parents, who then argue, which I thought was very interesting. His parents, his mother is a doctor, and his dad. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Have I caught what occupation his dad is, but. His parents argue about what to do with Virgil. His mother's a doctor and wants Virgil to get, you know, checked out because she's concerned about, you know, his powers and, you know, what they could do to him. If, you know, is this a healthy thing? Maybe it's not. But his father doesn't trust, doesn't trust people. And this is where you really get into the, the African-American slice of life. You know, the, the distrust of government, uh, you know, the and and the different the different ideas that they have about you know you know the mother doesn't the mother grew up in a medical system that uh, treated African Americans differently that inspired her to become a doctor but yet she still wants her son to get checked out by the medical community. Uh, John uh, John Hawkins uh, Static's father is less trusting and so I, I sort of like that snapshot into uh, into this family life into this African American life quite frankly and I, I think this is very well done it it really it it this really interests me and uh, again I I think it's uh, I think it's well done and meanwhile Static you know he's he's 
he's not really sure what to do. And so he ends up, he ultimately ends up contacting uh, Curtis Metcalf, who is the hero called, the vigilante hero called Hardware. And Curtis Metcalf works for uh, System Industries, or which is a criminal sort of a, ultimately was a crime syndicate who, and Curtis Metcalf actually developed this this sort of gas that ended up giving everyone powers but he didn't he didn't want it to be released it was experimental and now he's being framed by his uh by his employee the, the this alvin uh his uh i forget the, the his employers are basically trying to frame him and uh f- for for what happened at, at at the protest that led to all these kids getting their powers but he likes yeah. If Icon, uh, not, sorry, not to interrupt, Rocky. But if if Icon is the Superman analog, right? Curtis Metcalf is is Tony Stark. He's Iron Man, basically. That's right. Yeah, and, he's, and- he's he's just a, a, a out and out genius. Yeah, he he is a super genius, and he's got an appropriate name for it too, called Hardware. Yeah, and exactly. Uh, it's kind of almost like a Tony Stark Spider Man relationship in that you know Hardware. Just from a phone call, all, all Virgil has to do, all Static has to do, is call is call Curtis Hardware, and then he and he he's, he gives him the code to one of to one of his secret satellite headquarters that's all teched out, and <laughs> and ultimately he ends up going there, uh, where he is uh, mistaken for uh, Curtis Metcalf because Curtis's uh, Hardware's employee employer is looking for him, and they. Uh, ultimately, the police end up surrounding, uh, sur- surrounding this uh, this storage facility where uh, Static is in, where he was told to go by Curtis, and uh, that's how the issue ends. It's interesting. Like this, this is this is the stakes are being raised. He's a he's a kid. He's trying to fit in. Uh, he's he's got a fairly he, he's a fairly good kid. He's got the respect of his students at school. He he's got you know he he doesn't like he he he's some of his friendships he gets along with the students. Uh, he broke up with one friend in this issue who he felt betrayed him because his friend was more interested in interviewing him for his his live stream. <laughs> and uh, he's you know he's got a girlfriend. I mean this is a good snapshot. This is probably one of the most well structured overall. We got snapshots of Virgil's entire family, right from his sister Sharon to his mother to his father John. And this is a family that's struggling, uh, but they're they're working through it. And it's nice to see a family that, through dysfunctional times, is actually functioning rather well, given the fact that they're going through crisis like this. And so this is actually I can see I can see you know people can read this and really get into it. This is this is a well written comic. Vito Ayala is doing a, a really good job here. I don't know to how to what extent this exactly replicates the original origin of static or not. All I know I'm reading this for the first time and it feels fresh and new to me. So I can only think that's a compliment. Yeah, it's it's it just like Icon, it's it's pretty true to what happened the first go around with, with static. One one of the changes the most important change, I think, and I, I very much like the change, and I think Vita Ayala makes good use of it here, is the fact that Virgil's family is still all together. I think in the original, he's he's his mom's a single mother, um, struggling to make ends meet, you know, that that whole trope. And I, I saw mm-hmm. an interview that Vita did where they, they basically said one of the really important things to them was to have a strong family unit for Virgil to kind of go the other way with that trope instead of 
you know, oh, he, he had a comes from a broken home or poor family life or whatever. No, he, yeah. his parents that are very much involved, that very much care about both him and his sister. And so it gives a different dynamic. And we see that here, right? Like Virgil's able to stop their house from burning down, which is great. But yeah. in that way, he sort of lets the cat out of the bag. He has no choice with his parents that he has these powers. And right, his mother being a doctor, she falls back on, hey, you know, I don't want him to die. We got to have him checked out. The father, on the other hand, is saying, well, hold up. You know, I, I don't want my kid to be some lab rat. You can understand both sides. Yeah. Um, and I, I love the I love the dynamic there. Right. They send the kids out of the room and the parents are going to decide uh, white, black, green, purple, polka dot doesn't matter. <laughs> parents are parents. and They're going to decide That's what's right. best for their kids, even when the kids are probably old enough to have a say in it. Right. Maybe not old. Maybe Virgil's not old enough or mature enough to make the decision on his own. But he should. At least, he's old enough to have a say. But no, these parents they're gonna. Do, and I'm a parent, and I totally get the instinct. Right, you want to protect your child no matter what. So uh, I love that aspect of it, and I love that you know neither parent was right, neither parent was wrong. It, it's it's a really tough decision to make. You know, I, I see the point the mother's making. Yeah, we don't go get him checked out, and he dies of something because he could be continuing to mutate. And the father's saying, yeah, we could turn him over or, or get him tested. And the government comes and takes him away from us. And he lives the rest of his life as a lab rat. You know, like I, I see both sides. Um, so I thought that was probably the most interesting aspect of the uh, of the issue for me. Uh, I did like the the interaction with, with uh, Curtis Metcalf. I was hoping for a little more um, than just a, a quick phone call. And then, you know, yeah. Virgil, clearly Virgil's a very smart guy. Um so, you know, we'll see where that will lead. If there's anything that I didn't particularly enjoy about the issue, I didn't think the art, and I'm not saying the art's bad by any stretch of the imagination, but I didn't think the art in this issue was as strong as it was in the first issue. Um, and I think maybe it's just because we, this is a lot of smaller panels because they really try to jam pack a bunch of momentum. And, and I'm not saying story, but a bunch of momentum because I feel like there's not that many big story beats in this issue. You know, we get the end of the fight with heat wave. Uh, we get the argument between Virgil's parents. We get Virgil going to school and running into his old buddy, Darius, who kind of fashions uh, or imagines himself as some sort of Lois Lane type intrepid reporter and is trying to, uh, get the scoop because he's heard that Virgil has powers. Uh, then we get Virgil talking to to um, Curtis Metcalf, and we get Darius going and uh, talking to this little boy who's the gas turned into this like little demon like guy. And then we get Virgil going to the the laboratory, and that's it. So there's not a whole lot uh, of big story beats, but there's a lot of little moments, and it's definitely you know moving the narrative forward. But but based on that. Uh, I, again, it is a lot of smaller panels. And so I, I think the art, I won't say it suffers, but it didn't, it just didn't impress me as much as the first. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say, I, I'll agree with you. Uh, I, I actually found the art to be really good until it got near the end. I was disappointed when they, when they, he opened the shed and he opened the storage facility. I was hoping to see more of the tech 
We only saw yeah. it's all black and it's all in shadow. And I think maybe they're saving the show, saving it for the next issue. But I was really hoping to see like a like Darth Vader's bathroom or something, or t- Tony Stark <laughs> saying Iron Man like layout. But it's it's all just dark and like there are pages in in this issue that are fantastic. So in some of the backgrounds and and like when he's skateboarding on the park there. Uh, and that, you know, the, he's standing there with the blue sky behind him and he's, and he's talking with his friend. He's talking to Curtis Metcalf. It's a beautiful scene when he's skateboarding down to the, to the dock on uh, Dakota city. It looks really, I think it looks amazing. Some of the, the muted backgrounds. I mean, the detail in some of these panels is really good. Even, even the when there's nothing in the background, it's shaded and it, it, it's, 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 it's there's always something going on in the background there, even when there's nothing specific there. It's I'm actually, like I said, this is, um, I actually quite, I I really enjoy this visually. This is actually, this is, uh, the amount of talent that, that, and work that went into this. And even the way that it does, he does his lightning. Like when he shuts his kid's phone, his friend, when he uses his powers to kind of ruin his wreck, his phone. I I love the, the artistic effect, how the, he uses his lightning powers, how, how it's drawn on the, on the screen. It's, it's quite unique. It's unique to static. It's not like typical lightning. This is different than when you look at how they do black lightning and how they do electro over in Marvel. It's actually got its own unique visual look to it, which I find very interesting. Yeah. I think these, I mean, these artists, these collaborative artists are working in sort of a different way than, than most artists do. Right. I mean, you've got crisscross doing just the layouts. I don't know if those are, those are physical layouts or he's working traditionally or if he's working digitally. And then Draper Ivy is, is finishing those layouts and adding in the color. So, you know, he's doing more than just inking. He's adding detail and probably doing a lot of the background, you know, like you were mentioning the skylines and clouds and whatnot. That's all Draper Ivy. And and then he's laying the color over the top of it. So it's definitely a different way to work um, just based on the descriptions of, of how they're describing this art, you know, layouts by crisscross finishes and colors by uh, Nicholas Draper Ivy. Obviously, if I get a chance to talk to either one of them, I'll, I would ask him about that, <laughs> uh, about the process. But it does make for a unique look uh, for static for sure. So, yeah, so it it was a solid issue. uh, But like I said, I didn't quite enjoy it as much as, uh, as issue number one. So, Uh, all right. On to strange adventures. Number 11 from writer, Tom King, Mitch Garrods does the interiors and uh, the cover along with Evan doc Shainer. He's got one of the covers, Mitch does the other and they trade off as they have the whole time where Mitch draws all the scenes on earth and, uh, Doc draws all the scenes on Ran. Now, we got the bombshell last issue that the daughter of Adam Strange and um, Alana is still alive. So I postulated that I thought for sure that it was actually Alana that had made a deal and that. she had allowed uh, you know Aaliyah to be taken because I just didn't see any other way around it where it wouldn't make Adam Strange the bad guy and based (laughs) on what happens in this issue (laughs) apparently Adam Strange is indeed the bad guy which I mean I 
this is a good story and it's compelling and it's interesting, but at the same time, You're frozen there. Uh... Hello? I'm not sure why you're frozen. Sorry for the glitch, guys. There's a little bit of a, a hiccup there, but uh, we'll, we'll get right back into it. Uh, all right, uh, Jason. Yeah, I get to say I, I talk for like ten minutes before I realize I get to say it all again. Uh, but no, I was I was saying that I was wrong. I thought all this time that that it was Alana, and it turns out it it really was Adam Strange. And uh, I have mixed feelings about it because Adam Strange, this hero of the the late Golden Age, the Silver Age, to, good to the point of being boring at times, um, and he's this bad guy who betrayed his wife and lied to everybody on earth, including all the heroes there lied to everybody on Ron. Like I, I just has Tom King ruined Adam strange. Like what's going to happen in issue 12? How does this get turned around? I was so sure I was right. And I tell (laughs) you, if I don't like the way issue 12 ends, I'm going to be hectoring Tom and be like, you, you should have done this. And he'll probably say, Jay, shut the hell up. You don't know what you're talking about. This works better for X, Y, Z. But yeah, it's just, I, I ju- it's so emotional and, and so devastating. And maybe that's what Tom's trying to, to get at. Right. Um, well, now idea. you know how Wally West fans feel. Right. <laughs> and it's not even, it's not even that I'm an Adam strange Stan or something. You know what I mean? I just, it doesn't, it do- kind of doesn't make sense. It made so much more sense to me for Alana to be betraying her. She's not of earth. Um, but yeah. I, I mean, it's, there's so much here. Um, you know, when you start talking about Alana, the relationship Alana and, and Adam Strange have, Alana's talking about uh, in the scenes on Ran about, you know, feeling that Adam was her destiny and, and despite any planning and, and swearing to her father that she wouldn't follow that pull that she felt when she met him, there was no choice and how she's devoted to him and she loves him more than anything, more than anything. All she cares about is Adam Strange. Um, and then to our point earlier, we are just talking about when we're talking about static shock, the love of a parent, right? If there's anything that can overtake that love, she feels for Adam strange. It's her love for her daughter, Aaliyah. Uh, and see right there on the back cover to save me. You've killed me is what she tells Adam in the story, right? Like, yeah, yeah you, you, you gave up everything. Uh, you, you pulled the Mr. Spock, uh, the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. So, you know, he gave up his daughter, Aaliyah, to be a hostage to the Picts to save everybody on Ran and, and maybe to save everybody on Earth. We're not 100% sure. Like, I don't, I'm not clear on why the Picts would make this deal. I, I'm clear on it why they would make the deal with Alana if Alana said, you can have Earth, leave Ron alone, I'll give you my daughter as collateral. That makes sense to me. What deal did Adam make? Why would the Picts just say, okay, we'll take Aaliyah and we'll leave Earth and Ron alone? That doesn't make, that doesn't make sense to me. So uh, that's to be determined. But the fact that he he betrays Alana, like the, there's a scene where they're on the snowy mountain and she's she, uh, Alana's talking about everything they've lost because Adam Strange is like, we won the war. We finally killed the last two picks that were on the planet. The planet's been cleansed. Ron is free. Um, why don't I feel better? We should be celebrating and fireworks and partying and whatever. And uh, Alana says, well, because we've lost too much. And she includes that 
you know, in that loss, the loss of their daughter. And Adam just lies to her face. Oh, we'll get through it. We'll carry on. We have each other. We can start over, blah, blah, blah. All the while knowing that her the daughter's not really dead, that Aaliyah's not really dead. I, I don't – like why didn't Adam Strange take her into his confidence? I, I guess maybe he figured she would never agree to it uh, because, again, it's that love of a mother for a daughter. So there's a lot here. Um, fantastic art like throughout – it's really impactful and emotional. Uh, I was so sure I was right, though. It made complete sense in my head. So how this is, I mean, is it maybe not Adam Strange? Is it? Is it an imposter? Like, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Like, he's he's totally rationalized it to himself. And when you think about it logically, again, you're saving billions and billions of lives. And all you have to do is give up your daughter. And it's not even that you're sacrificing her because she's not dead. And at some point, you think maybe you can go and get her back. Um, but I don't know, man, Alana, he may have lost his daughter and his wife in this by making this decision, but this is like character alter, like irrevocably altering this character forever. If this is, you know, considered in continuity or what have you for Adam strange to do this and to, to have lied. And, well, you know, there's already the question of if he's a, if he's a war criminal because he's killed all these picks. And again, to go back to the idea, what the heck did he give up? for these picks to, to, you know, make this deal. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here, but mainly the, the the relationship between Alana and Adam, just, I I mean, to save me, you killed me. I mean, that says it all. Um, As much as she loved Adam, she loved her daughter more. And and can she ever possibly forgive him? Um, so yeah, there's a well, lot of, and then the, the other line that, that really resonated, it's on the back cover as well. They fed you a thousand lies and you asked for more. Like, is that the saving grace of Adam that he, he wanted to believe the lies that the picks were giving him so much that he kind of betrayed his own morality um, because he just, he wanted to believe what they were telling him when what they were telling him were, were lies. Um that I mean that that would be a little more in keeping with Adam Strange. He's never come across to me as a particularly bright character, uh, yeah. more of like a almost like a Dudley Do Right type character. So I don't know. I, I find it interesting. And if if DC has let Tom King sort of in a way, you know, change this character forever, maybe they'll make him an antihero. I don't know. It's not like Adam Strange series sell. You know, when they come out, they sell gangbusters. And why don't you? Why isn't there an Adam Strange? monthly title. I mean, well, if it wasn't for the fact that this is a, a Mitch uh, Garrett's Tom King project, hear that Mitch, I put you first, uh, might not be selling very well at all. You know what I mean? So I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it all plays out in issue 12, but this was surprising to me that I was, I was wrong about um, Alana being behind the whole thing. Well, I, I don't uh, look, I, everybody, you know, I was one of the ones you, I didn't like what he did to Wally West. And I, I remember at one time I wasn't the only one that sort of joked, but was actually serious saying, if you're going to destroy a character, at least pick a B or C list character. And arguably he did with Adam Strange. So, yeah. <laughs> so but I mean, I'm, I, I make a bad joke there. Look, I'm going to defend this story for a bit, and I'm I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be in the minority because there were people that from the beginning predicted that he was going to crap all over Adam Strange. And as of this issue, it does appear that not only that Adam Strange, um, not only that Adam Strange betray his wife, let his wife Alana actually cry, mourn their daughter. I mean, to actually 
to to not reveal. I mean, good God, the death of a child and not tell tell your wife that. Alana's not just a wife. Alana is also a diplomat. She's also from two worlds. She's all she's well, she's not from two worlds, but she's she's also uh, well versed in diplomacy herself and in war. And uh, it, she can keep a secret as well as anybody. In fact, throughout the entire series, she she was almost portrayed almost like a bitch because she was in, in many ways, uh, you know she. She, she she seemed to be well versed in the in the diplomacy of, of of war and and peacetime and 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 she had suffered a loss, but but Adam Strange does one thing extra here. He actually pulls a gun on his wife. It's one thing to lie to her about your daughter. What the hell is he doing pulling a gun on her? Like what is he planning on doing? Shooting her? And she even says that to him. Like what are you doing? I don't really understand this. I've read this series from the beginning, as you have, and in uh, in the defense in defense of Tom King, it was very clearly explained. Unfortunately, I forget. I'll have to reread issue ten. It was explained the deal he had with the picks was actually very, or the deal that was made with the picks that we thought maybe it was it was really Alana. It was actually quite 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 smart, and it involved trusting the picks, and he did. Billions of lives were saved, and it allowed him to kill a lot of picks in retaliation. And because of the nature of the life forms of the picks, they did they didn't mind sacrificing millions of their soldiers to let Adam Strange kill them off because it because they ad- obtained some diplomatic victories themselves. And uh, also, it has to be remembered that the picks would not be able to defeat Earth, the Justice League. They wouldn't be able to defeat the Justice League, but they could defeat Ran. So all those intricate things in play. I want to give some props to this story because Adam Strange is a little bit like Winston Churchill here. Now, <laughs> you might think that's Winston. How could I dare say such a thing? You got to make really harsh decisions in war. And Adam Strange is making making it. And granted, what a what an a-hole for lying to his wife. But at the same time, there's definitely, if, if billions of lives are saved and there's still a deception at play here, there might still be a deception at play that we're not aware of. Maybe the picks have a deal with him. Maybe he can't tell his wife. Maybe that was part of the deal. Maybe maybe he had to wait to certain things played out before he could reveal the truth. We don't know yet until we get to the final issue. I'm probably giving Tom King too bloody much credit. I usually always do. But... He says, Alana, this is not a joke. Okay, this is not a joke. Yet he's pointing at her. He want, It's almost like, does he want to say something, but he can't? But he's pointing a gun to her to, to, to make the point, to drive the point home. I'm not sure. This is either one of the most frustrating, disappointing endings to a story uh, in a long time. Or this could be just a really good... Adam Strange is actually interesting. Uh, the last time I saw, I read an Adam Strange story before this series was when Superman decided to converse and get the advice of Adam Strange about whether or not he should reveal his secret identity. <laughs> and unfortunately, Adam Strange never gave good advice to him in that either. And unfortunately, we have we know what what the fallout of that was. But in any event, when you go from that doughhead Adam Strange written by Bendis to to this Adam Strange, this Adam Strange is not an idiot at all. He seems to be a, a, a war-hardened diplomat. He can make harsh decisions. He can make sacrifices. And, and the sacrifices he's making, betraying his own wife, this guy is hardcore. Hardcore. I don't know if this is bad, writing Adam Strange in a bad way. I Look, I've, I've collected DC my whole life. And I've, I, I could probably fill a thimble with what I know about Adam Strange. I, I just don't read a lot about the guy. So... But I got to admit, this is kind of interesting to me. And I'm not going to lose sleep 
that him and his wife now have a, a bad relationship. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad that his daughter is still alive. Uh, Ran, Ran has survived. Ran hasn't been wiped out by the picks. So if, if there's one bad marriage that it's resulted from this, one divorce and a pissed off wife, that's a small price to pay for the save, for saving an entire race. And that's the only defense one can come up with. Morally, what he did as a husband is, is unforgivable. But as a diplomat, it was one of the most ingenious diplomatic maneuvers that one could think of, especially when you think that the, the, the consequence, if he hadn't done that, would have been the extermination of, an, of, of, Ran, of Ran. So it's interesting. Yeah, it, it is. It's definitely interesting. Like what we both have said, it, it may, it's got people talking. It's got us talking about Adam Strange, which normally is, is not the case. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I don't know. In a way, like in a way, when you – mess up Wally wet. Like when I read heroes in crisis, I, I didn't like the fact that it blamed Wally West for the death of all those heroes, but I knew because it's Wally West that eventually he would be redeemed, right? They would figure out a way to not blame him or it would get retconned or something, right? Because he's that important with a character like Adam strange though. He's not important enough, I feel like, to erase this. So this could just be the stain that he carries. So, yeah. and will anybody care except me? Who knows? Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Uh, Teen Titans Academy is next. It's from writer Tim Sheridan. Steve Lieber handles the art for this particular issue. Dave Stewart is on colors. Rob Lee is on letters. It's called Teen Titans Academy presents the Bat Pack in No Exit. Uh, give us your thoughts on this one, Rocky. Um, yeah, uh, this is, this is actually a, a backstory. This is, this gives the backstory to, uh, I guess the, the, the bat pack. This gives the backstory to, uh, D, uh, the three students of Titans, Teen Titans Academy, Diego Perez, who is Chuco Cabra, Brat Girl, uh, who goes, who is Marissa and Lucas Laporte, who is Mega Bat. And what is interesting about this is that, uh, it's, it's basically the, uh, you find out at the end that the story that takes place here is these, the, the three students are telling the sto their backstory. They're basically telling Red X their origin story. And it's actually right on the cover, you know, and one of the things that Red X does in this, after, after these, after the Bat Pack tells Red X their origin story, <laughs> uh, he in order to uh, gain their trust, he reveals his identity to the Bat Pack, but he, we, the readers, don't know who Red X is, but in order damn to try it. to gain... What's that? I said, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, the suspense is killing me, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, in any event, it's... Uh, the, the issue itself is called No Exit, and uh, I guess the X is supposed to stand for, you know, I guess No Exit Red X... What I find interesting here is this is really more of the origin of uh, Chupacabra because uh, Diego Perez, uh, they used to, they used to, uh, the three students used to go to the Beaumont school uh, for, I guess, for wayward children, I guess. And uh, basically the administrator of that school, the children in, some children in that school were disappearing uh, because the doctor at that school, Dr. Grussell, is, is basically experimenting on the kids uh, utilizing a formula uh, that's similar to Kirk, Kirk's Langstrom's research uh, on Manbat. And what I find fascinating here is that at some point, 
uh, Diego Perez impersonates his friend Lucas uh, because he wants to. They want to. He wants to get to the bottom of what's happening to all the his fellow students that are disappearing at Beaumont School, and ultimately he gets injected by this Doctor Grussell, and he ends up becoming uh, wait, sort of changing into. That's what makes him sort of turn into almost kind of like a quasi, well. Like a man, like kind of a little bit of a mini bat himself, or a vampiric bat of some kind, and this Doctor Grussell is is actually also infected and almost is kind of like a man bat creature himself. And what it is is it's a quasi super soldier serum intended to cure the disease of humanity. Like this Doctor Grussell has a very twisted mind, obviously, and. But he's also infected with his, his this formula, and it makes me wonder because this Doctor Grussell is almost almost becomes like a man bat character himself after he injects uh, after he injects young Diego Perez with this formula, and then when, when Diego wakes up, he turns into this uh, this man bat. Doctor Grussell does, and Megabet tries to defend them. And it makes me wonder because we just finished reviewing Man Bat in part one of this week's comics, and we know Man Bat died. Kirk Langstrom has actually, you know, had a very unsung hero. He had an unsung, you know, he died. And I'm wondering, is, are, is this Doctor Grussell going to be the new Man Bat? I don't know, <laughs> but it's it's kind of interesting there. But in any event, these kids then eventually escape, and they they escape with the help of Nightwing, who comes in with a dog whistle, and they they. They incapacitate Doctor Grussell, uh, and the dog whistle. Of, of course, only uh, only dogs can hear it, or certain certain creatures can hear it. And it ends up Diego uh, can also hear it because he's he's been he's changing into this sort of creature. And it's fascinating that he 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 has no problem. He doesn't seem to be traumatized that he's turned into this creature. He's he loves it. He thinks it's cool, and he he gives himself the name Chupacabra, which is really an odd name, but. In any event, Nightwing saves them. And Nightwing is so impressed with what they did. And these kids also, before they went, they also sent some evidence to Commissioner Gordon. Nightwing is so impressed with these kids that he invites them to Titans Academy, which is... And and that's when their story ends. And then suddenly it switches and we see that they've told this story to Red X. And this is where I get frustrated with this issue. Red X then, he's listening to the to whole story and... And then Red X tells them that, well, you know what? Since Nightwing trusts you, I'm going to trust you too. Red X says this. And Red X takes off his mask. And then Chupacabra sees who Red X is and says, no way. And Red X says, the Titans have never shown this kind of trust and they never will. Now tell me honestly, how is this school any different than the Beaumont home? Than, than Dr. Grussell. As I see it, the only difference is that it's even more dangerous. Have they even told you what they're training you for? Red X is trying to manipulate the Bat Pack into joining him. Now, Red X doesn't have a school that we're aware of. Why would they join Red X? And what I can't believe that the Bat Pack is that stupid. Because Nightwing, we, we, we've read the issues. They did tell the students why they're tr what they're training them for. To be better, to get a handle on their abilities. To become better people. To become better citizens of humanity. To help people. That's one thing that's been rammed home very clearly at Titans Academy. It's quite clear why they're there. And obviously it's dangerous, but given what Red X has put that Titans Academy through in the few issues that we've read, 
why on earth would they want to go with Red X? I, I find this, I find it astonishing. And then Chukopkabra is actually considering the offer. You know, they contemplate, you know, uh, 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 Marissa, who's Brat Girl, she right away wants to tell Nightwing about, hey, by the way, we just had Brad X in, in our room. <laughs> and of course, I, as a reader, I'm thinking, for God's sake, somebody tell Nightwing, you can't honestly be that stupid. But no, you know, Chupacabra saying, oh, let's just take a second. Let's think about this. Let's think about this. So I don't know if Chupacabra is thinking about what angle he can work or whatever. Uh, I don't know. But then to top it off, Nightwing wants to celebrate. And he takes the kids to the roof to celebrate the end of the first term. I mean, Nightwing has done everything. He has saved their lives. He's made their lives better. He's, he's given them a home. He's given them their tuition. He's paid for everything. And they're questioning him. And then this red X comes along and they're, 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 it's just, I find that very, very frustrating. But you know what? Let's not forget that this same bat pack, we know from future state, they end up being bullies to young, uh, uh, to, uh, dial, to the young man who owns the dial H for hero. And, uh, they, they, they bully him and steal his, his H style. So this bat pack, I, I think are, I think they're, I think they're bullies. I think that's what future state sh shown. And, uh, I like them here. I like the characterization. I want to be clear. I'm, I'm frustrated, but I like this issue. I'm frustrated in a good way. I'm frustrated with these kids, but they're kids and they, they don't always do the right thing. So I'm frustrated in a good way. I enjoyed this issue. I thought it had good characterization, but I'm also pissed off at these kids, but I'm an older guy. So it's okay to get pissed off at kids once in a while, but I enjoyed this chase. I don't know. How, how do you feel? Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of the, the bat pack as they're called. You know, these are characters from, from the Gotham Academy, which is a series that I, I never read. Um, so all throughout I'm reading it and I'm thinking, wait, isn't this supposed to, isn't this Teen Titans Academy? Cause it doesn't feel like Teen Titans Academy all throughout, you know, it feels like an issue of the bat pack series. Um, but they are students of Teen Titans Academy and, and we sort of are figuring out how they ended up there. Uh, like like Rocky mentioned with Nightwing basically recruiting them to, to come. And it it makes sense that they would be invited to come to Teen Titans Academy based on the success that they had and kind of saving their themselves and the other the other orphans. So it, it works as a story. I just sort of felt like this is Teen Titans Academy the best place to put this story in? I, I don't know. I guess I'm still just a little frustrated with Teen Titans Academy because it it hasn't been what I expected to be, which isn't really fair, right? I mean, the writer's going to tell the story that they want to tell, and I am coming around to being a fan of Tim Sheridan. I think he's done some really great things, um, particularly in the Shazam series that uh, we talked about uh, last week. So, yeah, I mean, I thought it was okay. I am, I am also frustrated with this whole Red X mystery. They apparently seem to be willing to drag it out, just, you know, ad nauseum at this point where – we're five issues in, so I guess it's not even half a year yet, but we've also had him show up in a couple issues of Suicide Squad, and, you know, maybe it's just that it seems so heavy-handed, like, you, you know, you said when Chupacabra sees him. No way! Clearly, it's somebody that he recognizes, uh, but maybe that's what Tim Sheridan wants to do. You know, he wants to torture us with this mystery of who Red X is, Um but you know, when you, I guess you could even think about adding in the the couple of issues of Teen Titans uh, Future State. You know, now we're up to what? I guess that would be eleven issues. Or no, 
nine issues, right? Two two issues of Future State, two issues of Suicide Squad, five issues of this. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. Can I? Can I, I? I don't know. I just I want some stories about the actual students going to class and you know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. When I think about you know books that are set in a school type setting, you know Harry Potter ish whatnot. Uh, that that's what I want, and we haven't gotten hardly any of that yet. So still, still waiting, still waiting. This wasn't a bad issue. Um, I, I imagine anybody who was a fan of um, Gotham Academy probably absolutely loved this. Uh, the Steve Lieber art I thought was okay. I, honestly, I feel like I've seen better art from him, um, but it was it was it was fine in service of the story. So yeah, I just thought this was just okay. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Wonder Woman number 776, written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. The art from uh, the majority of it is by Jill Thompson, and then Becky Cloonan does uh, the last couple pages. Colors by Jordi Belair, and letters are by Pat Brousseau. So we saw Wonder Woman fall through the, the well um, to get to Elfheim, uh, which is apparently where Janice, the or half of the god Janus supposedly is the, the god, half demigod that's been going around wreaking havoc in uh, the god realm. And, you know, she killed uh, all the gods of Olympus, which Diana was able to go to the graveyard of the gods and, and resurrect them. And so here we see her in Elfheim and it's a very, it's a fairy land and, you know, the, all the typical tropes of, Fairylands where promises are binding and there's a lot of trickery and lying and little fairies and things that put you to sleep and magic and, and all that sort of stuff. So Jill Thompson's style of artwork works very, very well for the story that's being told here, uh, especially the fact that she doesn't use panel borders on her panels, um, which gives it – I don't know what reason <laughs> it works visually, but it, it makes it feel more – fairy tale like um, yeah. and I've always thought that about her her artwork it's one of the th- things that I always notice about her artwork and it works very very well so um, we've gone from exploring mythology to exploring sort of a different kind of mythology when we start talking about fairies and the fae and and the magic and all that sort of thing and it feels very classic and it feels like it, it works very well um, but what it doesn't feel like is it doesn't feel like a Wonder Woman story. So I, I keep waiting for this book to start to feel like a Wonder Woman book again. It, it sort of did for the first couple of issues of this run yeah. with Conrad and Clunan, but it, I, I feel like it's gotten, and it's not to say it's a bad story in and of itself, but I find myself questioning whether Wonder Woman is the right main character to tell this story. And it certainly doesn't feel like any Wonder Woman story that I've ever read. But then again, Wonder Woman doesn't exactly sell well. So maybe they're just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. So I I don't know. I I sort of have mixed feelings. Technically, it's well done. I think they accomplish what they want to accomplish. It feels very much like an old school fairy tale type story. And uh, I think the art and the aesthetic are exactly what they want it to be. And it all works very, very well. Um, even to the point of the the dialogue, sort and the scripting, sort of feeling that way, and that's been how it's been throughout the 
the the vocabulary and the syntax that Clunan and Conrad have used throughout their run has changed based on what the setting has been. The, the, the vocabulary and the syntax here is a little different than the way everybody spoke in the last two issues when you're in the Graveyard of the Gods, which was different than when they were in Valhalla. So um, they're very much taking Diana on this trip through you know mythology and different genres, and they're successfully doing that. But again, I have to ask the question, who, who like it doesn't is this what they want the Wonder Woman book to feel like because it doesn't feel like a superhero book it doesn't feel like a Wonder Woman book um, does anybody want this is anybody reading this like I I have no idea I, I don't I sort of don't feel like I'm the target audience for this book now yeah. <laughs> whereas I when it when it's more superheroic I feel like I am so. I don't know. I'm just I'm a little I'm just a little puzzled by the direction of of where they're trying to get to, and so because of that, because I have no idea what the end point is, or what they're trying to get to, or what sort of the the point is of this overall story they've been telling so far. I have I feel like I can't really judge on how successful it is. <laughs> you know, is it getting there? Is it not? I mm, I don't know. Uh, the I, artwork's cool. That's what I'll say. Yeah. Uh, but what did you think, Rocky? I know you must have strong opinions about this. Well, one. you know, uh, you held me accountable uh, on the last issue because last issue I, uh, I just I got a little bit fed up, uh, and then you reminded me of how much I like the <laughs> the earlier issues by Becky Cloonan and uh, Michael Conrad, uh, and the art by Travis Morrow, which is really good. And uh, I guess I guess this doesn't really feel connected. You know, when 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 this you know. I keep going back. This feels so disconnected from Wonder Woman was the savior of death metal. She she represented the best of humanity and chose to to die fighting against the Batman who laughs and was all of the multiverse was rewarded because of Wonder Woman's sacrifice of all of us to die for something as opposed to live forever under the domain of the Batman who laughs. And so the cosmic gods rewarded Diana by restoring the multiverse and and allowing Wonder Woman to ascend. Wonder Woman chose not to ascend and join the quintessence. Instead, instead she chose to come back to Earth to fight this lurking threat that we all know is Darkseid. But where does she end up? Well, Ratatosk, this squirrel, this messenger of the Asgardian gods, you know, interfered. And so she ended up on in Valhalla, where she helped the Valkyrie establish th Thirsty Thor's Day so they could have a day off or something. I mean, a crazy storyline, but it was kind of fun. And it was clearly done. It, it's Wonder Woman is, is in the sphere of the gods. And so she went from Valhalla, and then she ends up... Uh, going to the Olympus, found out that this god Janus had killed all the Olympic gods. Then she ended up in the graveyard of the gods to resurrect the Olympic gods. And now she's trying to find her way back to Earth where she can help and battle the lurking threat in the infinite frontier of the DC universe. That's, that's what the goal is here. And there are a couple of references in Afterworlds here, part seven. Good Lord. Afterworlds, part seven, seven chapters to get Wonder Woman back to Earth. My God, I understand why they're doing it. They want to put emphasis on Wonder Girl. They want to put emphasis on Yara Floor, on Queen Nubia, on maybe Artemis and what's going on with that. I, I get all that. I just wish, you know, they're clearly, uh, they're choosing now to explore very artistic 
you know, Jill Thompson is a great artist. She's she's worked with Neil Gaiman. I got I actually got a lot of her work. I met her at the New York City Comic Con in 2019. Uh, she's she's wonderful to talk to. She's very talented artistically. She's she's a gem. Um, and this is a good enough. This is a this is a good story. I mean, this this is an interesting story. I just I'm not interested in it though. That's just it. This is I want Wonder Woman to be kicking some ass, getting her way getting her way back to fight the hordes of dark side. I want her missions. I want her adventures right now to be more linked with that is, is more in keeping with her heroic sacrifice and death metal. She, this, this feels like it's, it should be in a children's book. Like this, this doesn't feel that this is the right. Like I agree with you. This doesn't feel right. But having said that, I, I do, I would be lax if we didn't prop, you know, if I didn't try to properly review this, it is a decent story. It is actually, it's a, you know, she's in the land of the fairies and this king, uh, the queen has died in the land of the fairies and, uh, and this King Gwyn is discovered. He's the one that actually, uh, had a role in killing the queen, but King Gwyn right away, he puts Wonder Woman to sleep when he discovers her having entered the realm with fairy dust. Dead man shows up and warns her, don't eat anything and don't make any promises because a promise made in the land of the fairies cannot be broken. And also be very careful because magic is everywhere. Well, uh, it's clear that what happened is Janus, the god who killed all the Olympic gods, Janus fled through the land of the fairies and used Diana's appearance. So everyone in the land of the fairies thinks that Wonder Woman is the bad guy because looks, she looks just like Janus because Janus apparently took the guise of Wonder Woman when she went through the land of the fairies. Ultimately, Wonder Woman meets up with Siegfried, who apparently off-panel, you know, off-panel, talked with a talked with Odin, had Odin plant, a, plant a, a, a pin under a needle, and Odin said, find the needle and you'll find Diana. Again, more God nonsense, which drives me crazy in Wonder Woman. If the gods knew where Diana was, why not just rescue Diana and just... You know, I mean, I just get so fed up with the mythology after a while. But in any event, they do end up, Wonder Woman does end up, uh, you know, getting Siegfried. They end up defeating King Gwyn, King Gwyn and his brother. She utilizes the magic, la this new lasso she got from the Valkyrie. So it's interesting that this new sort of, uh, this lasso that she has, it's, uh, which is kind of a, it, it speaks to her. And this, this lasso allows Wonder Woman to command. So instead of getting the truth out of people, it commands them to do something. And they have to follow Wonder Woman's commands when she uses this lasso. There might be a price that's paid for using the lasso, but we don't know what that is yet. It's hinted that there might be uh, something uh, to that. Ultimately, in the end, uh, they do, and Wonder Woman does end up back. They do end up back finally on Earth. With Siegfried, who decides to go with her, I say again. I, I mean, I hate to sound like a broken record here, but I'm. I can't believe that Ratatosk, the squirrel, is 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 playing a part here. I just, to me, this is such an. I, I really do think this is an insult to Wonder Woman. That I, I want. I want to take Wonder Woman seriously because, from the multiversal angle, this is a woman that has has taken on dark side has taken on the batman who laughs has snapped maxwell lord's neck and she struggled her way back through the land of the fairies and she's accompanied by siegfried who is kind of cool but then a a freaking squirrel ratatosk i just i mean i'm sorry but it's just there's such a disconnect it's like 
I, I just I, I feel like they're not taking this seriously. And they're having they're having too much they're having fun at the expense of the character as opposed to having fun with the character and within the context of the larger story being told. And that's so while I love Jill Thompson, I just think that there's a time and place and this wasn't it. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes along with what I was saying about do they know where they want to go and who decided that this was the way they were going to get there? Um, And I can't help but think that, I I mean, I don't want to make it sound like this is terrible because I think technically, like I was saying, it's a a good story. It's well put together. You know, uh, the art is great. It's scripted well. It's paced well and all that. But, you know, when I say this, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm judging it or damning it as, as being bad. And I don't want it to come across that way, but I don't think this story happens under Dan Didio. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) because like I said, it doesn't feel anything like any wonder woman story we've ever had. And I I sort of feel like the reason that they're allowing this to happen is because they say, well, wonder woman doesn't sell well anyway. So let's, let's just try it. So I can't blame them for, for trying it. But for me, this doesn't work. Like, I mean, the fact that this is even a Wonder Woman book, like a, in the regular continuity, you know, regular Wonder Woman book, this isn't some, you know, Black Label or, or Elseworlds or, you know, this is the regular Wonder Woman book. It's so strange to me. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, I, there, she's back on Earth now. I guess we'll see. Maybe it's yeah. going to start to feel a little more traditionally like uh, like Wonder Woman. Um and as far as the, the backup story, you know, God, it's not like a broken record. Young Diana, family ties. I am enjoying the story. It's starting to, to tie things together and, and make sense. But I guess the the main story is so sort of fantastical and all ages like it feels more like it goes together with this backup than we ever have had previously since the series has started. But I still feel like this young Diana story just belongs in its own thing, which I, th- I think I did mention last time mm-hmm. I did see a solicitation where this young Diana story written by Jordi Belair with art by Paulina Gunnashow, colors by Kendall Good and letters by Becca Carey. It's all going to be collected into its own trade. So that's something I probably, you know, pick up for my daughter because it, it does seem to have some pretty good themes. And we do get sort of a bombshell at the end here that supposedly the one that, told the previous librarian to destroy the book that had the history of Themyscari was, uh, was Queen Hippolyta herself. So that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big bombshell. Uh, but yeah, it's, I, this is a situation where I, for the first time, maybe since I've been reading Wonder Woman coming out of Dark Knight's death metal or future state, however you want to look at it, I, I probably enjoyed the backup story better than I did the main story for the first time in the, in the Wonder Woman book. So, uh, did you, did you read the backup Rocky? Uh, I just skim read it again. I'm not, um, you know, uh, I, I think it, it is actually an interesting revelation, which really I'm hurting, hearing for the first time from you, but I just, um, I, I have to admit that I have to admit to a particular bias. I'm not into the manga style of art, even though sometimes I am, I'm just saying most of the time I'm not. And if it's if it's a little bit too cartoony like this artistic style is here, I'm not inclined to sometimes I, I just I'm inclined not to, to not give it the benefit of the doubt. Now, in fairness, 
there was 18 comic books we had to read this week. <laughs> and it, that, that has an impact too when I'm reading that many comics. And uh, sometimes my motivation for some of this stuff, what, I, what looks like to be a children's uh, st- style of art, I tend to breeze over a bit. Uh, I like Jill Thompson's art, but this one was, this art's fine, but it, it just feels, it, feel, it has a young adult uh, sort of fiction to it. And so uh, I'm being unfair to it. I should have, I should have prop, you know, I, this does deserve its own series, this own, its own collection. And, and I'm glad to hear that it's getting it because this type of Wonder Woman story clearly has an audience. And I would suggest that that audience, it's better, it's better found in, in a collected trade than it is in the individual floppies for Wonder Woman. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right, well, let's move on to the next book we're going to talk about. And I think this is the final issue, right? Book five of The Other History of the DC Universe, 1981 to 2010, Anissa Pierce, Thunder, who is the daughter of Jefferson Pierce, Black Lightning, stories by John Ridley, layouts are by Giuseppe Camincola, finishes by Andrea Cucci, colors by Josea, or Jose rather, Villarubia, letters by Steve Wands, uh, cool cover by Giuseppe and Marco Mastrazzo, and then a, a really cool cover by Jamal Campbell. It's another one where DC sucked me in with the variant and I had to buy both, uh, even though I think these things are like nine bucks or something. Uh, but, you know, it is the, the larger... Uh, format of Black Label, and like all the John Ridley Black Label books uh, of the other history of the DC Universe, you get a lot of. I mean, it's 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 an illustrated short story, basically. It's not a traditional comic. I mean, you get big chunks of text, and it's a, it's a heavy read. Uh, it takes a while to get through one of these. So, uh, what do you think of this one, Rocky? Uh, one, one thing. One thing that all these have been, uh, these uh, exposition heavy, this one deals with Anissa Pierce, who is, uh, is the, the daughter of uh, Black Lightning. And uh, it takes place between the years 1981 and t- 2010. And to be quite blunt, a lot of this, I, I said this before, uh, you know, sort of off, off the stream t- t- when we were talking earlier, that this feels almost like a who's who to me. This is like, I'm reading, it's like I'm reading a novel of the history of this character and I find it very informative It because it, it actually reminds, it, it sort of fills in the blanks. It reminds me of all the comics I've read because I've, I've read for a long time, but I've certainly forgotten more than I remember. And I, you know, I like reading this because it's like, oh yeah, I remember reading that story. Oh yeah, I remember reading that story. Oh, I remember that. Oh, is that what happened? I forgot about that. Oh, I didn't know this happened. <laughs> I found myself doing that just reading about Anissa Pierce. And, and then what I like about it is that along the way, what John Ridley does very well is that he manages to take the history of these characters and he flushes them out and he gives them more substance in with more modern day sensibilities through a modern day lens. And it, it just, it really works. Uh, I mean, uh, now I focus more on, on near the end. I, um, You'll probably you'll have to talk more in terms of the, the the detail of the substance itself, but this this goes as about as in depth as you possibly could for this particular character. This is called the other side of the DC universe for a reason. This does deal with the minority characters. This does get this will get 
dare I say the word political, or, you know, it deals with the, the issue of politics, of uh, uh, immigration, uh, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. This one deals with her orientation, and it deals with her growing up in, 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 in the family, the, her relationship with, she, she, Anissa has an interesting relationship with her father, because he, he was, Black Lightning was a superhero, and when he found out that his own children were Thunder, thunder and Lightning, and that they wanted to be superheroes, he felt like a failure. I found that was that was kind of interesting that he, unlike Superman, Superman is proud that John Kent is carrying on the legacy. Black Lightning felt like he he failed his kids because they they had to become heroes because he wasn't good enough. He never made the changes that he felt he needed to change. And I, you have to wonder: is that because of the color of his skin? Is that because of the African American experience? I, I I ask that question as I read this, and I think it's very fascinating. Uh, when looking at it that way, because this is a different Black Lightning is a different hero, and I know this issue has to do with Anissa Pierce, but it's very interesting to look at Anissa Pierce through the eyes of how she sees her father, and she thinks her father is a hero, and he and he was very good and a good man, and she, you know, they they knew growing up that their father was Black Lightning, and he would go and they, they wouldn't always know if he was going to come back because he, you know, he was putting his life on the line. And they couldn't tell their, their kids at school, their, their friends about it. Uh, but they were proud when they knew that Black Lightning did something that was heroic. But they still couldn't tell anybody about it. And then there'd be times they'd worry. And, and then, then with them following in their father's footsteps, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really good. And, and following Anissa Pierce's uh, growing realization of her, of her sexuality, this, you know, uh, it, it did work. I will say, though, that I think artistically, this was, I, I felt this was, dare I say, maybe the weakest of, of, the, of, the, of the five issues. I didn't, the art here never really, uh, you know, I don't know, it never really hit me as being all that, you know, it didn't really stand out to me. It's not bad. It's just, you know, it was just kind of meh. But again, I do like the layouts here. I like how the, the narrative style, all the exposition, there is a lot of it. The way it's spaced out on the page around the art, I think is is pretty good because you, there's always something to look at and to glance at in between reading all those words. <laughs> so I, it's not like I'm ever, you know, once you get into it and comfortable reading it, I mean, there is a flow, flow to it. And yeah, you know, again, it worked. I'm, you know, there's a lot of people that don't have the patience. If if you love comic books, you don't necessarily love this is this is a different kind of reading experience than reading a comic book because of the extra exposition. <laughs> and I know some people don't like too much exposition, but I think sometimes for characters like this, for minority characters like this, I, I benefit from reading this because I have to admit that, you know, and I. And I know I'm just a white guy learning more and more as I go in my old age, but I this was a this is a really good series. I'm looking forward to collecting all five of these issues or however many issues there are in, in a hardcover form because it's something that I can see myself going back to and rereading because it's a good history of the DC universe of, of characters that I love because you learn something about everyone, not just the characters that are the subject matter. So, uh, what do you think about it, Jace? Yeah, I think DC's gotten a lot of money from me out of the series. I think I've bought every cover, sometimes multiples of some of the covers. <laughs> and I feel the same way you do. Like I have a huge stack. It's only five issues long, but I'm probably going to end up with like 15 uh, 
issues of this. And then I'm going to, like you said, buy a hardcover of it all collected. If it's, you know, presented in a nice package, I think, man, I'm such a sucker sometimes, but it is that good. I want to support it. Right. Like I, from the beginning, uh, like a lot of people, I was disappointed when it got pushed back. Were we ever going to get it? John Ridley, super talented. Um, and it has blown me away and ex- has exceeded expectations the entire time. Uh, like I said, this is the last issue, and it's very interesting and very telling that the series starts off telling the story of Jefferson Pierce, and it's it's political, and it deals with uh, a lot of things that we're still dealing with in society from when Black Lightning was created in the 70s, you know, inequality, uh, racism, poverty, all those things. Um, and here we are 50 years later, uh, and like I was talking about with Icon and Rocket, we're still dealing with far too many of those same things. Um, but it, it's bookended, right? Like in the first issue, we talk about Jefferson Pierce. In the last issue, we're talking about An- Anissa Pierce. Uh, and Jefferson, you, you can't help but root for him. And he's very sympathetic when you read the way John really presents him in the first issue. Then you get Anissa's perspective in this issue. And all of a sudden, he comes across maybe not so great. And I found I find that juxtaposition being the bookends of the series very very interesting because it's almost like you're getting two views of even within you know the whole series is about getting a different perspective and different views of of the DC universe right this is the other history the history of the DC universe has seen through the eyes of minority heroes um, and now even within those minority heroes. It's all about perspective, right? Anissa is a, from a different generation of her father. And so her experiences are different and she sees things differently. Uh, and then even her relationship with her father plays out very differently. The experiences of her life, uh, because that's something that John really has done throughout, right? He's, he's interwoven real events of, uh, of our world into the narrative. You know, he talks about don't ask, don't tell here. And this is a, uh, you know, she's a lesbian. She, she's in a relationship with Grace from the Outsiders. Um, so, you know, when you talk about LGBTQ issues, that's something that resonates with her, something that's important to her. Um, and so a lot of this story as she grows and uh, grows into her sexuality and starts to have a relationship with Grace, it starts to color the way that she sees things. Before that, she was sort of um, asexual in a way. She didn't Pursue. She wasn't attracted to men. Um, she knew her father because of his religiosity, is the way Ridley puts it, uh, and just sort of his, you know, righteousness and sort of the judgmental way that Jefferson Pierce is, and the stubbornness um, that he would never accept that. You know, her, that her orientation was different, and so she just she denied that part of herself. You know, and Ridley goes into the exploration of that through Anissa's uh, words um, that I think a lot of people uh, of the LGBTQ community can probably relate to. They probably went down the same path. You know, they just didn't have relationships because they weren't attracted to persons of the opposite sex. And if they knew if they had a relationship with a person of the same sex, that's in a way sort of outing themselves, right? So they just deny themselves that relationship. And in, in that way, they're denying part of who they are. So I thought that was a very poignant part of the the story and the narrative and a very important part of who Anissa uh, is as a character. What's so interesting is that, you know, Anissa was a big part of the the Outsiders, uh, the version of the Outsiders that was founded by Nightwing and Roy Harper, and that's a big part of what uh, the narrative of this issue is. Um, and in that way, you know, in her identity of Thunder, she was a 
pretty big character, or at least she showed up quite a bit in the throughout the DC universe and in monthly comics and whatnot from the late nineties through right up to, you know, kind of around 2010, which is sort of the, the time period that this covers, you know, and then of course we have some added stuff of Anissa's childhood and some contextually how she gained her powers and, and whatnot. Um, but what's interesting is since that time, she really hasn't shown up much. I mean, she was in the, um, the pride issue with grace but other than that, I can't really remember her showing up. And and so what's so interesting for me is that that time period that she was sort of more of a mainstream character in the DC universe kind of coincided with the time where I wasn't really reading comics. And then when I did come back um, after three or four years, I was mostly reading Marvel stuff. So I, I really am not that familiar with the character at all. Um, and so for me, this is sort of, uh, you know, like you were saying, Rocky, who's who to give me a lot more information, a lot more context about the character. I find her to be an interesting character. It certainly makes me want to go back and read uh, a lot of that outsider stuff that I, yeah. I had never read. So uh, I, I think this is a fantastic series. Um, I would, I, I sort of hope that John really would do more. And um, I don't think it necessarily has to be from the perspective of, minority characters in the DCU. Like I, I, and I'm not trying to silence her voice or say it's not important to get their perspective because it hundred percent is. And I would be in for more issues of the other history of the DC universe with more uh, viewpoints from minority characters. I would be totally fine with that. My one I'm getting at is I love this format so much and this sort of expositional recap and history and, and bringing in context uh, and bringing in real world events to give context and, and to allow the characters to comment on real world events. I just love the structure of the story. I love the format. Um, and so I just, I just want more of this type of, of stuff. And if there aren't enough minority characters, you know, why not bring in some other uh, kind of B or C list characters? I mean, I don't think this, this sort of works with Batman or, Superman or Wonder Woman because they've gone uh, or, you know, other care flash Barry Allen, Wally West, those characters who have had so many thousands of stories told about them. We, and they've had kind of different, we've gotten different versions of them because they have had so many stories written about them that you, you have to tweak them and you have to uh, bring in sort of new versions of them from time to time and, and refresh them so that you have new stories to tell. So we've gotten so many different perspectives and, you know, you certainly couldn't say the Batman of today is the same as, you know, the Batman of the late nineties, which was the same as the Batman of the 1970s. There are subtle differences there. Um, same thing with Superman. You know, you can't say the Superman of now is the same as the, you know, the John Byrne 1986 version. And that's certainly different than the version uh, pre-crisis when he was much more powerful. Um, and so you really couldn't tell this type of story with those characters because their perspectives have changed sort of as the, the characters have shifted slightly to keep them modern and to be able to keep telling fresh stories with those characters. But when you're talking about characters like Anissa or Katana or even Black Lightning, who's probably the most well-known of all the characters uh, that have been covered in the history of the DC universe, um, especially because he had his own TV show. Um, but even he is is not well-known enough or hasn't been around enough or had enough stories told about him enough that uh, that he's had a bunch of different versions. So when you take these characters that are less well-known, 
it's easier to just, okay, this is who they are and let John Ridley do his thing. So I would love to have more of this. I don't, again, we don't get the sales uh, data like we did when DC was being distributed through Diamond. So I don't know how it's selling. It's certain, everybody I talk to loves it. So I, I kind of hope that we get more. But at the same time, it w this did take a long time to come out, probably because it is so much work. I know John Ridley did a ton of research, probably read every comic. It's impressive. Characters... It really is impressive. Yeah. yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he read every comic that these characters appeared in, you know, and uh, kudos to him for doing that and then still having uh, the wherewithal to write it. Because I remember back in 2015 or 2014 when I – I was doing that was back when the comic source was still a YouTube channel. I wanted to do a spotlight on Harley Quinn and I read every single Harley Quinn appearance up to that point. And I was so sick of Harley Quinn by the time I finished reading that. And maybe it's because I wasn't really a fan of the character in the first place. And I just did it because that was right when Jimmy and Amanda were uh, writing her series and she was blowing up and I knew it would, a lot of people would be interested in it, but I, I was like, the last thing I wanted to do was read more Harley Quinn. Uh, John Ridley r probably read every appearance of these characters and then was not sick of them at all. In fact, embraced them and wrote some incredible prose about them. Because this is really not, like Rocky said, this is really not traditional comics. This isn't word balloons and sequential uh, art telling a story. This is really prose interspersed with some uh, really great art. And I, I do agree with you that the art in this one is, it's not that it's lesser. But I feel like, th and you know, I could go back and flip through and be able to tell pretty easily. I feel like this is the densest read. Like, there's the most prose in this issue. Like, it took me the longest to read of any of the five. Um, and so there's so much uh, text here that there's not a whole lot of room for dynamic art. But the art that is here, it's it's beautifully done. It's beautifully colored, and it definitely adds context to. Uh, to the words from John Ridley. So I thought it was fantastic. This has been a, a great series. I'm sure it's going to be on my list of best books of, of 2020 because it's, uh, it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so. I, I, and I, I would encourage any, any future writer at DC who who's ever going to write any of these characters that are in these five issues of the other side of the hit, the other history of the DC universe, read this series. Cause this, this is a, this is, this should be the DC comics Bible for these characters. Because I mean, uh, wow. Cause it, this isn't just a history of these characters. You get the character of these characters. It goes yeah. in depth. I mean, it goes, it goes deep. And uh, if you know these characters by that, you know Anissa Pierce when you're done reading this. You know Katana. You know Renee Montoya. You know Jefferson Pierce when you're done reading those issues because it's that in-depth. And you, you know these characters. And it's hard not to like them or at a minimum appreciate the humanity uh, that underscores who they are and why they do what they do. Yeah, 100% true. You're not just getting the history, you know, the events that have happened to them. Like Rocky said, you get their their context, you get the person, their personality, you get their emotion, you totally understand who they are. Um, and it's so interesting that, like I said, that this is the one that has the kind of the most substance to it. Because despite Jefferson Pierce being the probably the most well-known, like I said, I feel like uh, Anissa might have, you know, as many or more kind of important stories than her dad. Uh, and it, it has a lot to do with the time period that the Jefferson Pierce stories were, were told in. I mean, 70s comics are kind of, 
you know, read them and they're just, especially at that time, Jefferson Pierce, the trope of the angry black guy. And there's not a lot of substance to pull from there as opposed to Anissa, you know, being created in a time where comics were much more of an art form that told uh, interesting stories. And there's a lot of contextual stuff there to pull from. Um, and when you think about the series overall and you look at the, the issue that probably had the least substance and it's the one with, um, uh, is it Karen Beecher and um, God, what's the the other the the first black teen teen Titan? I can't remember his name. Cyborg? Um, no, the from the original Titans. Um, uh, I want to say Tyrock, but that's the black. That's Legion of Superheroes. Yeah. The, anyway, the second issue that talks about Karen Beecher and the he didn't even have any superpowers if you remember back in the second issue, and he was just. His name starts with was it Mal something? Hmm. Uh, anyway, yeah, um, yeah th that second issue they they have the the least amount of, of history or, or like sort of uh, substantial stories told about them. So that one reads the quickest because there's just not a lot for Ridley to, to pull from. So yeah, uh, Mal Duncan, that's his name. Mal Duncan and Karen Beecher uh, from the wow. Teen Teen Titans. But again, it's that for it's the first Teen Titans team. It's not new Teen Titans from Wolfman and, and Perez era. That's going back. Yeah, yeah, definitely going back. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, Wonder Woman Black and Gold number two. We got some pretty cool covers. There's the main cover by Terry and Rachel Dodson. There's a couple variants: one by David Mack and one by Joshua Middleton. First story is Without Love, written by Mariko Tamaki, art by Jamie McKelvey, lettered by Simon Bolin. Second story is A God With No Name, written by Chi Grayson, art by Corin Howell, lettered by Wes Abbott. Uh, Homecoming, written and illustrated by Tilly Walden, colored by Jordi Belair. A Common Motivator, written by Stephanie Williams, art by Ashley A. Woods, and lettered by Becca Carey. And then we finish up with The Acquaintance, written and illustrated by Rachel Smythe, or Smith, uh, lettered by Becca Carey. Um, man, I thought the first issue of Wonder Woman Black and Gold was so good, and I I feel like this one has a couple of interesting stories in it and some gorgeous art at times, but it, it doesn't live up to that first issue. And Rocky and I, before we started recording, we're sort of talking about that, how these limited color palette uh, stories, we've, we've, our series, we've talked in the past about how it's time for them to probably go away for a little while. <laughs> sort of uh, <laughs> not a fan. Um, they've been sort of done to death, but they're just so wildly inconsistent from one issue to the next. Um so the first story here by Mariko Tamaki, man, we've been reading a lot of Mariko Tamaki lately. I thought it was, I thought it was fine. Um, it, it probably has the least amount of gold of any of the stories really don't use much of it at all. Um, oh. The artist, Jamie McKelvey doesn't use much of the, the gold color at all. It's almost all black and white, but the line work and the storytelling and, you know, just the transitions from panel to panel and the choices he makes to show action and uh, how dynamic things are it's just it's gorgeous by far and away the best looking story in the book um and it just reminds me how, how much i love jamie mckelvey's art i don't see enough of it um because you know last week he did that backup in captain marvel for uh over at marvel comics for the um the 30th issue of that series and that was fantastic as well and you know seeing his art two weeks in a row yes please so, yeah, I thought I thought the first story was fine. Um, 
but the artwork really brought it home for me, made it probably my favorite of the issue. What'd you think of this first story, Rocky? Uh, artistically it's it's really good uh it, it's beautiful i love the fact that the heart is what's gold here this is a story it's this is the story about you know without love and this is a this is a um honestly this is the type of wonder woman story that uh, i traditionally don't like and i truthfully i don't like this story but i want to be clear this isn't a bad story this is just so grounded in mythology. This is what I just don't like. These are the, exactly the type of stories that I wish writers would stay away from when they write Wonder Woman. In fact, uh, as much as I I defended the Wonder Woman 1984 movie for what it was, the fact is it was a terrible script and it was a terrible story because it, it was it was grounded in nonsense mythology. It's just absolutely stupid. It was just a dumb, dumb script because it's like you know wishing you know be, you know whatever you wish for you guess this that's just dumb. And this, I'm sorry, I'm, this is my bias, you know, because people love mythology. And there's some interesting mythological characters here. Eris, you know, the, the, the chaos god. And I wonder if this is, this, this, this chaos god or god of chaos basically convinces Eros to rip his heart out. And apparently when Eros rips his heart out, the world is deprived of love. So you may not have known this, Jace, but if you love your children and you love your wife, it's not because you actually love them. It's only because Eros has his heart in him. Rip Eros's heart out and nobody loves anymore. This is the nonsense and the stupidity of these types of stories that I just, I shake my head and, uh, you know, and again, and and then, I mean, it's so, it's just so dumb. And then Wonder Woman, you know, she, she takes, she takes the heart at the end and she slams the heart back into Eros. What? Yeah. What's? The, it's just so it's dumb. Cool, it's cool, like it's dumb. It's cool, Sorry, it's a super cool visual. What's that? It is a cool. It is a super cool visual. It, it is. <laughs> no, you're right. And I'm, I guess I, I'm being I, I'm being hard on this. I'm I'm being harsh. But I'm just, you know. I mean, I will fight for love's return. And this is so cliche. Come on. Is there anybody on the planet that doesn't fight for love? Anybody? Everybody fights for love. We've gone to wars for love. Everybody fights for love. Wonder Woman, this is a cliche. I mean, do something original. Like this is, even in an anthology, I get it, but come on, man. Like this is this is exactly the type of tropey stuff that, you know, again, I guess I expected to see it in, in an anthology. And guess what? It's in an anthology. But uh, in any event, I, you know, it, uh, it doesn't work for me. I, I don't like. I, I don't like these stories that are grounded in mythology. I think it makes Wonder Woman look stupid. Uh, but just uh, just to be clear, Wonder Woman felt it was so important that we have gods like this around that she went to the graveyard of the gods and she wanted to resurrect all these idiot gods that causes kind of chaos. Why? What is it really? Apparently, it's because well. Eros can never die because if he dies, love will die. And this is the type of nonsense that, that is regularly in Wonder Woman comics, uh, you know, at least once once or twice every two, three years. I mean, you see this, and this is what drives me crazy with Wonder Woman. It's not just in these anthologies, but in any event, I digress. Suffice to say, it, this struck a nerve with me only because of how frustrated I get with, with how... You know, every writer does this. You know, they they want to tell a God story. You ever notice that you don't see this with Thor? How come Marvel, when they write Thor, the, the mythology stories are so much better? The, the, the characters are so much more interesting in Thor. It's because they relate to humanity in some way. It's because there's 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 something 
there's there's just more they're more relatable here this is we get nonsense like this it just drives me crazy again beautiful art nonsense story sorry <laughs> i went yeah, on a I rant think, there <laughs> i think i think the north mythology just it, that sensibility suits kind of the american culture better than greek mythology greek mythology yeah sort of antithetical to american culture i feel so that that might have something to do with it but you must have hated the second one too a, a, a god with no name chi grace and corn howl um the art's okay i, I think <laughs> i mean corn howl's art i've seen very good art from corn howl um <laughs> this is not it i i think her art does her art needs color uh, because this this art doesn't come across very very good, um, and I, I can't look at anything in it and and point to anything that's wrong with it. It just it doesn't it just looks really flat, um, and I think it needs color to to add depth to it. So this one was okay, um, you know, like Rocky said, it's it's more of the god stuff. So I I don't know uh, without the great art to kind of pull me through. I just, I was just kind of meh and it got, it got worse from here, well, but I, I got to tell you to say about this one. Yeah. I'm i I'm a big fan of Brian Israel's wonder woman run. I, I enjoyed that. That's one of my favorite incarnations of wonder woman. And he, his entire, his entire three year run on wonder woman in the new 52, the, the villain was the firstborn. And this is reminiscent of that. This 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 is not this is reminiscent of Zeus's first child called the firstborn. Here, Zeus's first child go is a god is called the god with no name in this short story. And this ultimately ends up this god with no name ends up uh preventing Wonder Woman from getting a cure to, to cure her mother Hippolyta. And she ultimately has to fight this firstborn, uh, who is the, the the son of Zeus, who was banished to the pit at the core of the earth, and it took him seven thousand years to crawl out of the pit. And at the interestingly enough, at the end of Brian Azzarello's Wonder Woman run, Wonder Woman casts firstborn down a pit to the core of the earth. <laughs> at the end of of, the, of of his Wonder Woman run, after after firstborn refused to be. Wonder Woman did offer to save the firstborn, but he chose to fall and in, fall into an endless pit. But in any event, it reminded me of that, and so for that reason, I actually I actually like the idea of a firstborn, a god who is actually a real jerk and evil, but at least he owns it, you know. And uh, I actually I actually like that. I I kind of like this, and I like the the evil of this firstborn. Uh, I actually would like this to be a full. Po I would love the firstborn to return, quite frankly, because I think that's one of Wonder Woman's better villains. But I didn't mind this. It ended rather conveniently. She rather she defeated the first th this god with no name a little bit too easily. But I loved the blood. The blood was gold, and you know the the as you said artistically, it was it was visually it was very stunning, and I thought it was uh, I thought it was interesting how they how they used the colors, and yeah. You know, it was okay. Good memories of Brian Azzarello's Wonder Woman run. That's uh, that's what I'll give it. <laughs> it isn't didn't Azzarello go deeply into the God stuff that you just said you didn't like? Uh, well, actually, I want to be clear. I I've never there the 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 best Wonder Woman story has yet to be written. Uh, okay. I, I said it's I said it's one of the better Wonder Woman runs. Gotcha. And to be honest, uh, the reason why I like Brian Azzarello's Wonder Woman run is because the way that he handles the gods. 
the way Wonder Woman uh, Wonder Woman calls another woman a bitch. She's uh, she the, the Amazons are imperfect. They rape sailors for their sperm over one hundred years. Uh, there's a reason why they got rid of the new Fifty Two Wonder Woman is because Brian Azzarello wrote Amazons like they should be written, like they're a little bit off their rocker. You can't have women isolated on an island for three thousand years and expect them to be all sane and rational. They're not. They couldn't possibly be because they're, they're you know. And how do how do they repopulate their species? Brian Azzarello dealt with all those questions. He dealt with Manazons. Uh, they, they when the Amazons gave birth to male children, they 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 drown them, but have Fiestus uh, saved the, the, the male-born Amazons, and the Manazons, as they were, ended up being uh, helping him uh, in the pit of hell make, make, make his swords. Uh, I mean, it was a rich and vibrant story that he gave, and he, he made it believable and vibrant, and he did a really, really good job in, in three short years that, unfortunately, we, we, we had to get Greg Rucka back and undo everything and bring back Bambi and friends as the gods and made, made, made the Amazons perfect again and everything that just drives me nuts. But anyways... Uh, so that was that was rebirth, Wonder Woman. You're talking about, <laughs> yeah, Greg right. Ruck's rebirth, which yeah, but, but it, you know there was a there was a period of time between there where Azrael had left before Rucka. That's before right. Rebirth Meredith happened. Finch, Meredith Finch had a run uh, on the title uh, with uh, David Finch did the art where the Manazons yeah. were exterminated and killed by by an insane feminazi Donna Troy and uh, yeah there was yeah they <laughs> yeah, tried I remember to remember that. Yeah, I know it drove me crazy. You know, basically DC tried to undo a lot of the uh, what they didn't. They didn't like Brian Azzarello's run. <laughs> they really didn't like it. They tried to undo yeah, it. I don't understand Rebirth. why they. Yeah, I just I never understand why they agree to do the things and then they un then they spend years undoing them. Here well, was every, a, here was every, a crisis. You know, there you go. Yeah. Why did you do it? Why did you give it editorial approval? You're yeah. going to spend the next three years undoing it. Yeah, everybody loves George Perez's run, and uh, I think it's high. You know, I love George Perez; he's my favorite artist. But I think his over his Wonder Woman run, while it showed love for the character, I just thought I didn't, I didn't appreciate his interpretation of the character yeah, personally. Too, too too grounded in the gods. A, well, I, yeah, I, I really do think that she's too beholden to her gods. She supplicates herself too much. Wonder Woman gets on her knees too much. She forgives the gods too much. She worships them too much. She puts the gods above humanity too much, uh, and then she'll pull back and do something for me. Like, and it's and and there's examples of that in in this anthology. There's examples of that. Even what she's doing right now, you know, you know. I mean, why doesn't she go to the ends of the earth to resurrect dead humans? She'll do it for gods, but she won't do it for humans. I mean, there's so much hypocrisy in her actions, it drives me crazy. And that story addressing that hypocrisy has yet to be written. And when it does, and when it is written, uh, that will be that will be the one of the better Wonder Woman stories written. In, in my you know, if it's, done, I, if it's done if it's done well. Sure, of course. But I'm very, I'm very, uh, I'm very opinionated when it comes to Wonder Woman. So I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, what did you think of the next story in here? Homecoming by Tilly Walden, script and art. Jordi Belair does colors. Uh, it there's oh, one word, uh, two words throughout the entire story. Wonder what? Woman is dreaming. I didn't, uh, I, I, I didn't get much out of this. Um, I didn't Wonder understand it either. Mom. What is she actually dreaming? She's 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 dreaming that she's on Paradise Island and then floating back and then gets gets pulled under the water and apparently drowns almost but then is allowed to come back but she's a young girl, a little girl when she comes back, travels through Hades, 
ends up in a forest, runs into her mother. Her mother kisses her. Yeah. And then she turns back into Wonder Woman and wakes up. I, I, okay. <laughs> I, I don't get it. I, I, I don't, I really don't either. This is about maybe, uh, she misses me. It was just written at a time. There was a time when Hippolyta was dead and maybe she's just remembering her mother and she's, and she had, a, she's just dreaming about her mother. She, she seems to wake up in a cold sweat or she's sweating. It looks like, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't really understand this. I mean, uh, this is a very stylized art. It's not my cup of tea, but if this story had more context, context, maybe I'd appreciate it more, but I, uh, you know, it's just Wonder Woman having a dreaming about her mom. So I don't know. Maybe it's very Freudian. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did. I, I guess I wasn't smart enough to understand that one. Uh, the next one it seems like it would be right up your alley. A common motivator. Stephanie Williams uh, writes it. Ashley A. Woods is the artist. I'm, I'm not familiar with Ashley A. Woods, but the art here is spectacular. And it's basically, you know, a story that's sort of as classic to the Amazons as you can get with Artemis and, and one of her uh, tribe against Wonder Woman and Nubia in like an obstacle course type competition. So th this rang very true to me. I thought it was pretty well done. Um, if it <laughs> ended up being a little, I don't, I don't know what the word is. Uh, basically at the end, Hippolyta says, you know, earlier she had said, oh, the, the good thing about Nubia and Diana is they're both so keen on outwitting each other that brings out the best in each other. And then I guess it gets a little petty at the end when Hippolyta says, I was wrong. Actually, it's it's the fact that Nubia and Diana dislike Artemis so much. It's the dislike of Artemis that, you know, they could not allow, possibly allow themselves to be defeated by Artemis and her partner. So I thought yeah. that was a little, a little petty, but... I don't know. It does yeah. feel classic, classically Amazonian. Yeah, I agree, and and hence Artemis being the common motivator, and uh, yep. you know that that's one of the things that that Wonder Woman, and again, it's 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 one of the mistakes that writer after writer makes when they write Wonder Woman is that they're so bloody afraid to give Wonder Woman flaws. It is a huge mistake. Wonder Woman, I mean. I, I'm sorry, but she can be petty once in a while. She she can get upset once in a while. Let her get upset. Let let her not like somebody. Let her let let her like you know. She doesn't have to be perfect all the time. You know, it's very hard to relate to Wonder Woman. Uh, there's the relatability factor is one of the reasons why do you, why do you think so many people love Yara Floor? It's because Yara Floor is impulsive. Yara Floor, you know, will hit first, ask questions later, and we've only got like five or six issues of Yara Floor, but. It's so refreshing to see an Amazon and to see a a, a Wonder Woman like isk character, not be just always so kind of kind and loving and perfect all the time, and beholden to gods and supplicating or like just you know it's I like to see a little bit of the I, she needs more of the warrior aspect in her and that's clearly where my bias lies but that's where the interest lies too because you know part of the, part of any hero's journey is. You got to focus on the mistakes before you can appreciate the redemption and the and the obstacle that's overcome at the end. And too often, Wonder Woman is just all the obstacles. She always seems to overcome them in because because of her perfection, as opposed to actually, uh, you know, 
doing anything. You know, the Wonder Woman 1984 movie is a prime example of that. I mean, talking your way out of a situation. I mean, don't even get me started. But in any event. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we should get out of this Wonder Woman. I'm, I'm going to rant all day here. But. <laughs> well, one more story. Uh, the Acquaintance Story and Art by Rachel Smythe, uh, Becca Carey. So if you're not familiar with Rachel, she writes the most popular webcomic in the world. It's read by millions and millions of people. Um, oh, really? What's that? Yeah. It's called Lore Olympus. It's on Webtoon. It's It's been optioned to become a, a cartoon. And, yeah, oh, that's it's, awesome. It's, it's, it's very, very popular. It's a, uh, a romance story about uh, like a soap opera. It's very much a soap opera with backstabbing and betrayals and whatnot. And it's, it is, it does use, you know, uh, Greek gods, Hades and, uh, and that sort of thing. So she's a good choice to write Wonder Woman and her, her, I don't know that her art, I think it works for her characters. I don't know that it works the best here with Wonder Woman and Cersei. Cer <laughs> to me, Cersei should be attractive and she looks pretty homely here. Uh, that's part of Cersei's uh, ability to sort of charm people. Um, but I do like sort of like her version of Superman. Uh, so I thought this one was okay. Basically, Cersei has, has tricked Superman and turned him into a mouse and Wonder Woman has to go and rescue him. So, uh, but it's, fu it's fun. It's lighthearted. Um, if you like the story and the sensibility, I definitely would encourage you to go check out Lore Olympus, you know, Webtoon. It's a free platform. You can go and download it and uh, read the digital comics there. Um, so yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I don't really have much to add. Uh, artistically, it's definitely, it has a unique style. It's, 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 it's good. You know, it's actually, yep. it, it has a, it has a, almost like a lyrical sort of uh, humorous style to it, if, if that makes any sense. It's actually, uh, I find it, uh, normally I'm, I'm, I'm turned off by the style that, that I would think I'd be turned off by the style of art. But, uh, you know, as you say, it does have a sort of a satirical sort of uh, tone to it. So I could see myself, you know. I could see myself. I'll have to check her. I'll have to check her work out. I did not know that about her. That's interesting. Yep. Uh, next issue, we get Janet Harvey and Megan Levins doing a story. Robert Venditti with Steve Epting. That sounds very intriguing. Paula Sevenbergen and Anaki Miranda. Then Peter J. Tomasi and Christian Alame, and Amy Garcia and Sebastian Fumara. So, yeah, for me, that Venditti Epting story stands out as a possible winner i'm a big fan of both those guys so uh, all right on to the last book we're going to talk about superman son of kal-el number one a lot of people anticipating this uh it's written by tom taylor the artist is john timms gabe eltab is the colorist dave sharp on letters uh yeah like i said on part one once you release this book superman son of kal-el it's going to be really hard to put the genie back in the bottle and <laughs> kind of the nail in the coffin on John Kent ever being 11 years old again in the, in the comics forever 17, I guess. So what'd you think Rocky? Uh, you know, this was, uh, well, look, I love Tom Taylor, but let, let's make no mistake. This was a comic book that was, uh, very generic. This was generic. This was safe. No chances were being made with it. This was derivative. The art was mediocre at best. Um, who does John Kent want to be? He doesn't know. The reader doesn't know. What are his plans? He doesn't know. The reader doesn't know. Uh, he wants truth, justice, and a better world. 
Well, don't we all? Really? Really? Again, generic, one-dimensional, boring, completely lacking in substance. But let's be blunt. Let's be very blunt here. It has to lack substance. Why? Because this is Superman, son of Kal-El. And really, what do we know about him? We don't know much of anything. He was aged up very quickly. Uh, uh, the best thing about it is he's very in cover by, by Jen Bartel. I mean, son of Kal-El. I mean, he's a very attractive young man. Unfortunately, what, what is he going to do? Uh, I, I do like the fact that we got a new origin for him. Because, you know, it's, you know, he was born during an alien invasion. And there were some cool moments here that Tom Taylor's really good at scripting. An attempted alien invasion. That point right. is made Thank over you. and over. An <laughs> attempted you. alien yeah. invasion. That's right. And, uh, and it has to be an attempted alien invasion in order to emphasize the fact that that's not the focus of the story. It's, of course, it's the birth of John Kent. And, you know, there are some really great moments here. I mean, very good moments. The Justice League, they want Superman. Superman, let us handle this. We got this. Go. You got more. You got a more important thing you got to worry to, to go focus on. And of course, that's the birth of his son. Batman. I mean, can you get more appropriate? Batman at the Fortress of Solitude. Wonder Woman inside at Lois Lane's side as, as she's giving birth to what Wonder Woman rightly describes will potentially be the, the, the greatest child born in, in the next generation of heroes and going into the future. And um, Lois Lane makes some jokes. I mean, Tom Taylor, great with dialogue. Lois Lane jokes, you know, because they're talking about her almost like she's not in the, in, not, not in the room. Uh, and there's some wonderful moments here. I... I think artistically this this suffered. I, I think these moments should have been drawn by a better artist. I'll be blunt. I, I I I'm not a fan of John Timms. I didn't like his work on Future State. I think I think he's the wrong choice of artist for this comic, and uh, I, I think that's I think it's really unfortunate. But he does he does do he does to his credit he does have some really good pages here. This is a there's a beautiful page here with Lois and Clark holding young John Kent. And Batman and Wonder Woman talking outside the cave, talking about, you know, uh, you know, about conducting tests on the child and all the stuff you'd kind of expect. Tom, Tom Taylor has to start at the beginning here. So uh, as much as I, I know I started off sounding like a real cynical bastard talking about this. This really was a, a good opening issue. It was. It just was. For, for us who've been following John Kent from the beginning, this is very generic. Uh, but it has to start somewhere. And even even this, like the whole, there's a scene where there's a fire, there's a, cal, you know, fires in California. John Kent is helping the firefighters out. Apparently the fires are caused by this one, I guess it's almost like a mutant. There's this individual mutant or this metahuman that is so stressed and when he gets stressed, he, he blows up and he turns into a human torch-like character and John Kent calms him down because he figures out that his stress levels are height, his stress levels when his heartbeat increases, increases his fire output. So he calms him down and he asks the military, you know, you know, he gives the child, gives the kid to the military saying, you know, you know, just be mindful that this guy has anxiety, you know, treat him well. The military knocks him out and John Kent gets really upset and the military man rightly tells John Kent, you want to piss off the military here? We're the authority. 
uh, I, I side with the military on this one. Uh, obviously, you're going to knock out a, a domestic terrorist, uh, whether he's whether he's responsible for his actions or not. He's a danger to society. Uh, John Kent's naivete really shines through here, but so does his so does his compassion. I'm going to give Tom Taylor some credit here that uh, I think John Kent is as perfectly naive as a lot of teenagers should be. When you're 17, 18 years old, how many people really know what they want to do with their life? Uh, John Kent, unfortunately, and this is why I hate to say this, but I really do find him probably next to Wonder Woman. John Kent is probably one of the most uninteresting characters in the DC universe right now. What is he going to have? Is he going to have a secret identity? He can't have a secret identity. He's talking with Damien later, and as Damien is, as he points out to Damien, everybody knows who I am. You know, why does everybody know who John Kent is? That John Kent is super Superboy because his father was stupid enough to reveal his secret identity uh, in one of the most dumbfounded moves ever. In in addition to the aging up, uh, but you know that's what we're left with. So what is John Kent going to do? Is John Kent going to get a job? I mean, even Wally West got a job <laughs> with Mister Terrific. What's John Kent going to do? How is he going to make a living? What is he going to do? Is he just going to what? Help? How does he make a living? How does he make money? Like I, this is, I know he doesn't need to eat, but where's he going to live? Is he going to live at the fortress? And if he is, I'm already thoroughly uninterested in John Kent. What is he actually going to do? Clark Kent, Superman, that dichotomy is interesting. Why should I be interested in John Kent? And you know, this is this is what I'm looking to Tom Taylor. And by the way, I want to be I want to be fair to Tom Taylor. I don't think I think any writer. I don't know what the hell Tom Taylor is going to do, but I got to tell you that, you know, you can maybe you'll have some really great plot points. But if all you're going to do is distract me with a bunch of adventures for John Kent, that's missing the point. I want to know what who John Kent is. As a human being, if all this is going to be about is the House of L, you know, and John Kent's going to grow up and we're going to have a bunch of little super kids and we're, we're all going to f fly around wearing an S on our soldiers like we're gods flying around the planet Earth. as so not the Superman I'm interested in. I want a grounded Superman. I don't want the future House of L. I hate that. I want a grounded Superman. I want one with a secret identity. I want his children to have secret identities to live and to help people and to not you know not reveal themselves so they can fly around and be kings like John Kent flying around questioning the military undoubtedly violating sovereignty of nations and you know he's going to what he's going to be more proactive he's going to follow Damien's advice you know be the cure be the cure I would suggest that John Kent should maybe look at his father's own history instead of worrying about his father's future maybe dying. Look at your father's history. Go and interfere in other nations. There's a reason why your father can't cure all of Earth's problems. It's because one person, one super person can't do it. And But hey, he's young and stupid and you know he, and he, but he's naive and he's going to figure out that he's going to figure out that he's wrong if the stories are written properly. He's going to figure out that he's wrong and that he can't do it and that humanity has to do it for themselves. And you can be an example, but you can't do the work yourself. If you insist on doing the work yourself, you will become the villain. And since that was at one point, uh, arguably, even the Spectre in Infinite, Infinite uh, Frontier Zero even speculated to Wonder Woman, who was uh, on the road to Ascension. Spectre speculated that 
you know, we should watch out for John Kent. He's a potential villain. He's a potential villain in the making. He's a, and Wonder Woman said, no, look at all the good that he did. And John Kent rose to the occasion and, and saved an alien race and everything else. But uh, I like, you know, I'm frustrated with this. But it's not Tom Taylor's fault. Tom Taylor's done as good a job as I can expect. But I just don't know how much can he really work with here? How much is he, what is he allowed to even do with this character? I mean, what can he really do with this character? He, I mean, he, he's not going to go to school. He's not going to go to college. He's not going to, what is he going to do? I mean, like this is, these are the questions I have. And I, I'd be really curious to know what Tom Taylor's answer to this are, to, to answer this is. But if all he's going to do is join the Justice League, join a super team, fly around. I mean, has he, when's the last time we saw John Kent wear normal clothes? Just like a human being. Couldn't, couldn't tell you. I mean, exactly. I mean, well, I mean, we when we the Super Sons, we saw young, we saw young John Kent wear normal clothes all the time, and and he, I mean, and and now I don't know, like, there's, I, I'm really, really worried about this. I'm really worried about this because I don't like initially. I have no when I think about a character, I get excited about a character, and I imagine to myself, oh, I hope he, I want, him, I want him to do this, I want him to do that. I got nothing when I think of John Kent. I got nothing. I just honestly, I got nothing. I don't even know if I like this kid. And I think I, and I, and I'm trying to forget about the seven year age up. Okay. So assuming that never happened and he's, he's a well-adjusted kid. Okay. What about him? Why should I care? I haven't got an answer to that yet. And in fairness to Tom Taylor, it's only one issue in, but I'm absolutely in for the long haul here. I'm going to give Tom Taylor a lot of rope because he's earned it. And, uh, we'll see where it goes. And, uh, sorry for being so long winded there, but, uh, I don't know, Jace. Are you are you more optimistic than I am? Am I I'm I'm too cynical? What I don't know. I don't know. I have I have mixed feelings. Um, first of all, the art. Yeah, I, I sort of agree with you. This uh, John Tim's art is here is, is leaps and bounds better than what we got in Future State. It's not as busy. He gives the the story room to breathe when he needs to, but there are just little inconsistencies that bug me. He does that thing like that Brandon Peterson does where in certain panels, he outlines the entire character with um, a colored line. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's especially (laughs) noticeable on the very last page where John's in space, even to the point of outlining the holes in his cape with blue. And it's just, it's so off-putting to me. Um, So I don't like that. And, and why, why does, why does John, look like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Why is his nose all red at the end of that? Like, in that it's last cold in page. space. Like, like I, what? I, 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 yeah. Um, Tim's especially faces, uh, he struggles a little bit. Uh, there, there are moments where it should, he, it should shine and it, it doesn't necessarily. So um, that being said, the color work is done really, really well. And I think the page layouts are done reasonably well um and you you know you do feel the action and and there's impact in some of the the scenes against uh when john's fighting the fire and whatnot and so all that sort of works for me um but i mean i can sort of tell you everything you need to know about john kent really simply in terms of you know who is this guy and and where his head's at he doesn't know if he's done the right thing with this mutant, as Rocky referred to him, by giving him over to the U.S. military. He doesn't know what his place is, you know, be the cure or, or whatever. What does that mean? Uh, you know, he has all this power, 
and he could affect real change, but he's nervous to use it. He's worried about overstepping and, and looking like he's some sort of despot and he's making decisions for humanity and, and he wants some advice. And who does he go to for advice? Damien. That tells you right there everything you need to know about John Kent. You know, those seven years, he did not learn anything. You know, I feel like maturity wise, intelligence wise, he's still 11 years old. Yeah, but Ultraman, be- Ultraman is such a good father, father figure though. Right? Yeah. So he still sees Damien as more knowledgeable than him. It's like, what are you, what are you doing? And, and I just recently saw something and maybe it was from the um, Comic-Con at home where Tom Taylor was talking about how the, the age gap's the same. Like it used to be Damien was three years older and now John's three years older than Damien. So the gap is still three years old. I got to say, one of the worst things about John Tim's art, they look the same age. Damien yeah. looks just as old. Damien does not look 14 here. Yeah, um, he looks older. Yeah, he looks way older. And I do sort of like, like after reading this issue, you know what I wish? First of all, I love the costume that John Tim's puts Damien in. It doesn't look reminiscent of his Robin costume at all. I love that. The colors especially. I love the characterization that Tom Taylor gives Damien. I wish Tom Taylor was writing Robin and that this Superman Son of Kal-El book didn't even exist. <laughs> that would be like yeah. the best solution here because I love the way he writes Damien. Um, and like he writes Damien, he's still arrogant. He still thinks he has all the answers, but he's not out and out unlikable the way Joshua Williamson writes him. You know, we talked about that on the part one when we talk about Robin number four, how it feels like Joshua Williamson has de-evolved um, Damien and it feels like Tom has Damien in the right place. He, he acts like a 14 year old. He thinks he knows more than he does. Um, you can't hold that against him as opposed to the outright unlikable character that Joshua Williamson has turned him into uh, or regressed him to. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. When we want to talk about John Kent, getting back to what I was saying, he goes to Damien for advice. This is not the guy you should be going to for advice. Why aren't, why aren't you talking to your mom? Why aren't you talking to your dad? Why aren't you talking to Wally or Barry or John Stewart? Like somebody who's been in the trenches, not, not Damien. Um, So I'm right there with you, Rocky. Like, we don't know who this kid is. This kid doesn't know who he is. Um, And it all, I I totally agree with you about the secret identity thing too. Like how can he even have a life? How's that going to screw him up? You know, the, the argument could be made. It's a bigger mistake. What the choice that Bendis made to have Superman reveal his secret identity, that's a bigger mistake than aging John up. Like, you know, you talk about when was the last time we saw John Kent in normal clothes? When's the last time we saw Clark Kent? You've, you've, you've reduced super, you've taken away half of the character of Superman. He's just as heroic. Did, did we not just talk about what an incredible story we got from G Willow Wilson and the Superman red and blue that felt very Christopher Reeve inspired where it was this really great story where Clark Kent saved the day. Clark Kent stopped a robbery through nothing more than him showing compassion and empathy for uh, somebody. That is who Superman is. He's not just Superman in the costume. He's Clark Kent. He's that kid that grew up in the Midwest that has those traditional American values that were instilled in him by Ma and Pa Kent and, and the reporter searching for the truth and all that. And Bendis just pissed it all away. All that's gone. All we get now like when's the last? Have we even seen Clark Kent in a single issue of anything that Philip Kenny Johnson has written? No, no, uh, no. it's been all 
Superman. And, and and where's the connection to humanity then? Uh, you know, yeah. where's John Ken's connection to humanity going to come from if he doesn't have a secret identity? If he's always flying around above everyone? I mean, there, there's a reason why the secret identity exists in the Superman mythology. And it's been abandoned now. And now he's just like any other Marvel character where there is no secret identity anymore. It's, it's just, I find it appalling. I just, I find it appalling. And uh, yeah. Whatever I, yeah, can, I, I, I can rant. I, I agree with you. It, it it it's reductive. It harms the character of John Kent because he has n- nothing else to bounce off of or or learn from or grow from. And it's also reductive to Lois because have we seen Lois do any reporter stuff? No, she's just been window dressing, standing around. It's exactly uh, right. You know, we got to get a cool scene with her firing off a, a Kryptonian gun, but still, that's not that's not Lois's world. That's not where she she should be. You know, she's been reduced to this kind of pale sidekick to, to Superman and, and John Kent instead of out there having her own agency and searching for a story and going on her own adventures. So, you know, it, it's as much as I've been liking some of the stuff Philip Kennedy Johnson has done um, and it's been getting better until he get, Superman gets his identity back, his secret identity back, his, his Clark Kent identity back. I feel like we're in for a rough ride and this is just a symptom of that. Yeah. You know, we're getting this character of John Kent who can can by the very nature of the situation he's being put in without having a chance to grow up and learn how to use his powers and learn how to be, um, you know, a, a mature, normal person. He didn't get that chance. All of a sudden, you've turned him into just John Kent, son of Kal-El. That's all he is. It's It's one dimension. It's one flavor. It's one channel. There's no layers. It's just this, like you yeah. said, generic. Not yeah. interesting. Exactly. Um, and where's and, the supporting and, cast? You know, what What about new, like I realize it's only the first issue, but I, I want him to have a supporting cast, like a, even a potential love interest or, or something. And, and a love how interest. Can that, how, how can he have a love interest? That would be putting that person at tremendous risk because he doesn't have a secret identity. Yeah. He can't have a life. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it makes no sense. It, so what I'm worried about is even as talented as a writer as Tom Taylor is, any kind of layers or or like complications or drama he brings to the story are going to feel tacked on. They're not going to feel organic. Um, I really don't know where he can go with this story. So it's up to him. And I don't want to say like, you know, it, it like I'm some person that he's got to impress or whatever, but it, it's sort of up to him to prove me wrong, you know? Um, and I don't know, this feels like a generic first issue. It wasn't terrible. It, there were some interesting things that happened here, but, and I, again, I don't hold Tom Taylor. It's so interesting because he was so excited when this got announced, right? I'm finally writing Superman. And as much as I you know, love Tom, I've met him several times. Um, I wanted to say, but you're not, you're not really writing Superman because Superman is Kal-El number yeah. one. And number two, in order to write Superman, you need to be able to write Clark Kent and there is no Clark Kent anymore. So as excited as he is, and I'm excited for for him, in my mind, this isn't really writing Superman. Um, so I, I, I feel bad for the position that he's in uh, because he really wasn't set up. If Superman is his favorite character. It's Tom Taylor's favorite character. Kal-El is Tom Taylor's favorite character. Um, and he's always dreamed of writing him. And I would love to read a true, like, let's go back. And instead of having Bendis come on to Superman, at that point in time, have Tom Taylor come on. Yeah. Can we retcon that? 
Did you know? Do you know what really pissed me off? There was a line in here that John Kent said, and I have it up on the screen. John Kent actually says, "And how would I be someone else? I'm I'm one of the most recognizable people on the planet." And I feel like saying, "John, you idiot! Talk to your mother, who was an idiot for a long time because she never your your dad wore glasses for for this whole goddamn life, and nobody knew he was Superman. How can I? How can I? How can I be someone else? Are you retarded, John? I mean, you got technology. You could you could holograph. There's all kinds of ways you could have a secret identity. You've never contemplated that. You never thought about that." Come on, man. Like, this is nonsense to me. I can't emphasize enough how much more interested I would be in this story if he had a secret identity. He's a young kid. Doesn't he want to get laid? I mean, let's let's put it all on the table here. Doesn't he want to have relationships? Doesn't he want to have a secret identity? Even D- Damien said to him, you need to find a way to not be you. Yep. Uh, I mean, and Damien nailed it. And he does. And and so that's what he should be doing. I really, really hope Tom Taylor is going to be giving him a secret identity of some kind because I think he needs to do that. Because, I mean, look, his father benefited from being Clark Kent for years. That's how he got in touch with with humanity. With uh, And if he's going to deprive that from his son, what's John Kent's connection to humanity when it's only been Damien and then, then Ultraman for seven years in a volcano? I mean, I... I'm sorry, but we just can't escape this. It's it's the it's the two elephants in the room that that have to be addressed. Yeah, God, I don't know. Yeah, so ultimately, I was sort of disappointed. Um, thought it could have been more. I mean, there are there are some good moments here, um, both artistically and narratively. So uh, I'm certainly not giving up on it yet. Uh, like you said, Rocky, Tom Taylor has has earned. The, the chance for yes, yes. at least three or four issues. Uh, so I guess we'll see where it goes. Uh, all right. Well, that does it, everybody. Part two, just as long as part one, 18 issues in the can. <laughs> Hope you all enjoyed <laughs> it. Uh, don't forget about the auction coming up this Sunday. Uh, if you are going to be attending Terrificon, love to meet you. I'll be wandering around the show. So just look for me, come up, say hi, don't be shy. Uh, our buddy Dark Knight Nation, Trevor, will be there uh, tabling as well with his comic, which um, Area 51, The Helix Project, the third issue, its campaign just went live on Kickstarter today as we're recording this. So uh, as you're listening to it, it's already live. Go give it a uh, look. Just do a search for Area 51, The Helix Project on Kickstarter, and you can find it there. It's definitely worth your time. Uh, don't know if I have don't, – don't really have any other – um, episodes coming out because I'm going to be busy traveling and whatnot. So uh, auction is taking up a, a lot of my time, but obviously we'll still have the regular uh, new comics Wednesday episode coming out. Uh, so anything you want to plug Rocky? You have uh, yeah, I, I am going to be reviewing the second issue of uh, the uh, area 51, the Helix project. I'll be doing that uh, this week, uh, which is of course, uh, Trevor Lankiewicz is uh, <laughs> uh Trevor's uh, Dark Knight Nations comic book uh, that it kickstarted for number uh, three is is this open this week. So uh, everybody should support that because uh, he's well on his way of being being funded. So I'll be reviewing that. And I'm also going to be doing, I've put together a video of a review of in the story of Infinite Frontier from death metal to what we know to Infinite Frontier. I'm just doing a synopsis putting together all the pieces of uh, Infinite Frontier and I'll be a speculation video. So that'll be coming out in the next week as well. So 
Fantastic. So, uh, all right, everybody, be sure if you're listening to us on the podcast, you head over to the Comic Boom YouTube channel and subscribe. Also, ring that notification bell so you know when Rocky has new videos coming out. Uh, also, be sure to give this video a like. If you're checking us out on YouTube, be sure you subscribe to the Comic Source podcast. We're available on all platforms or just use your podcast app on your smart device and do a search for the comic source uh, and subscribe that way. So uh, once again, we really appreciate the support and for everybody taking the time to join us and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Google play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.